So welcome back. This is a weirdest thing podcast. Um, I am your host, Scotty Milder. Just to remind everybody, uh, Amelia, my usual uh, partner in crime here, she is not going to be on for a while. She's off in Virginia acting. But I am super excited to have a guest host today that you guys might remember. I actually mentioned her on our little Barnum and Bailey episode from February of last year. This is Rebecca Rowland. So Rebecca is a dark fiction author and editor hailing from New England. Most of our stories take place in the areas of Boston and Western Massachusetts, which I do want to talk to you about. She's an active member of the Horror Writers Association and specializes in psychological, feminist, and quiet horror. Her weird horror novelette, Shagging the Boss, which is a great title, is available for pre-order from Filthy Loot Press, and her sci-fi novella, Optic Nerve, will be released by DT Publishing in late July. Rebecca is the curator of six horror anthologies, uh, the latest of which, Dancing in the Shadows, is a new gothic collection in tribute to the late Anne Rice that benefits Animal Rescue of New Orleans. And just uh, spoiler alert, I'm actually in that anthology. So you should take that out. So Rebecca, hello, welcome. Hey, Scotty. Yeah, uh, listeners should know that Scotty's actually in three of those six anthologies, I'm proud to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we were just talking about the one that I'm not in that I'm pissed off at myself that I didn't submit to. <laughs> yes. yes, Generation X. Yes. Yeah, if you guys want to go back and check out the other anthologies, they're Shadowy Natures. That's from when? September, I think, of 2020? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yep. then uh the half that you see, which was from uh early 2021. Right. The uh the Ides of March we released it on. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. Um, and those and one thing I do want to talk to you about, I've been in a like humble brag here i've been in a fair number of anthologies at this point and i have to say both shadowy natures and uh the half that you see are two of my favorites in terms of just like the breadth of stories uh in them and so i wanted to talk to you a little bit about like what your approach is when you're curating these anthologies because i've got to imagine it's got to be hard kind of finding the right balance of stories that fit the theme but also like bring a lot of diversity sure to the collection yeah i mean i i have to tell you that i'll be very straightforward on how i pick stories so when we put out an open call we try to make it as broad as possible because we do want all different styles we Mm -hmm. want all different approaches but when i'm reading submissions i pretty much i look at the quality of the writing first okay and because even if it's a fantastic story we don't really do line editing or anything like that we Mm -hmm. want someone that's going to do just tell a fantastic story and then we go back and and there have been times where I've had two absolutely incredibly written pieces but they're so similar in tone or so Mm -hmm. similar in approach that I I just end up it's usually whoever gets in first I mean I hate to put it that way but it's (laughs) kind of like you know that's that's just the way it is but I appreciate you saying that because it is something that I've tried to keep in mind when I when I do select stories is I do want that variety Mm -hmm. and I I'm glad I'm glad to hear that it was successful yeah because so the theme to shadowy natures was is like psychological horror it's kind of non-supernatural horror right and I don't want to spoil any of the stories, so I'm not going to say anything about the other stories. My story is called The Seven Days of Dog Walking. Yeah, it's um, actually, it's it's pretty disturbing, actually. And it was before 
before I knew you and I read this and I was like, uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah, know if but, I want to uh, be in a dark alley with this guy. It's, um, well, I remember you had a, uh, oh, what was, what was, was it genre junkies you were on yeah. and they did a review mm-hmm. and they were reviewing my story and were clearly fairly upset by my story <laughs> and then conflated me with the main character at one point. Mm-hmm. Like they said the name, they were talking about the main character who's not a nice person. I called him Scotty, Yeah, which yeah. I was like, yep, I, I have arrived. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But one thing I remember thinking when I read the stories in Shadowing Natures was how different each of them was. I mean, you, I think you had like a Western horror story in there. You yeah. had some body horror. You had some really quiet horror. You had some stuff that was a little more on the extreme side. I would say my story is probably a little more on the quiet horror side. But yeah, um, yeah. And it's funny. And I, I've said this before, and I'm sure CW Blackwell's tired of hearing about it, but I... I'm usually not a fan. Well, I I wasn't a fan of historical horror and Mm -hmm. I've become kind of a convert. And I think it's because of his story that's in that collection where it's, it's an old West horror. And I, you know, I started reading it and I was like, I'm just not a fan of historical. (laughs) And it was just so good that now Mm -hmm. it's something that I, that I actually seek out. Yeah. And I, I think it's because of his story that I was, that it really did convince me. Yeah. Yeah. When I've, I've read a couple Western or I've, I should say I've written a couple Western horror stories since then. And that is one of the stories I will go back to and look at to kind of mm-hmm. like get myself in the mindset because yeah. it is writing historical fiction, regardless of the time period is like getting your brain locked into like that different voice is not yeah. easy. Agree, um, agree. So I do want to talk a little bit about, I read your novel a month ago. The, it was a co-written novel, and I oh, cannot pieces. pronounce your co-writer's name. What's it? Aloisi. Yeah, Aloisi, that's Michael what I Sure, yeah. It's, yeah. it's called Pieces. Um, <laughs> I didn't know what to expect from it. Um, I knew I wanted to read it because I loved, the, I loved the, the concept. And then actually diving into it, it really kind of wasn't what I expected, and I really loved it. So do you want to kind of tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So it's, it's basically, so Mike and I are both, we, we just, we do a lot of short story writing. So really mm-hmm. it's, it's almost this weird hybrid between right. being a crime novel and being a short story collection. Mm-hmm. So it's about a serial killer from Western Massachusetts yep. who abducts a girl, cuts her into 30 pieces, and then mails the pieces mm-hmm. to random people around the nation. Right. And 18 of the pieces are turned in to the authorities, but 12 are not. And yeah. so interspaced between sort of the, the main narrative of the killer and the journalist that he's taunting are the stories of the 12 pieces and the people mm-hmm. who receive them and then why they never turn them in. And so yeah. Mike, Mike and I pretty much, we wrote the pieces. We knew, we knew the basic skeleton of, of the frame story. And then we, we divided up the, the body parts, which sounds really yeah. morbid. It's kind of like, no, I want the uvula. No, no, I really, you know, I really want this part. And then divided up the places, and we all chose. We we chose places that we had, we we had been to, we had visited or yeah. relatively well. Um, the Boston one in particular is my dorm room. 
um, mm. freshman year. Inter- well, so- that's interesting because I because I know that dorm room because I went to Boston <laughs> University. I know I knew exactly where it was set. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah. I mean, that it could not have been more fun. I, I Mike and I had such a great time writing that that novel. That, yeah. Um, you know, who knows? Maybe someday there'll be a sequel. Maybe. I would love that. I mean, I think that <laughs> the way I've I described it, and I've t- I've told a couple people about it, is uh, I said it's kind of like the Red Violin, but with a corpse. Oh. So if anyone has seen the movie The Red Violin, <laughs> um, you know, it's about this like it's a very lovely movie about this violin that is kind of passed from place to place, and you get little vignettes about all the different mm-hmm. people who have the violin, and this is the same thing except the stories are not lovely and it's body parts. <laughs> <laughs> my God, this is my new blurb. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> it's but what I loved about it was I mean you hear you hear the concept and you think this is going to be splatterpunk like that's mm-hmm. a little bit what I expected I think yeah um which I was totally down for I love I love a good splatterpunk story and it was less so than I thought I thought you guys did a really great job of kind of balancing just enough of the visceral um but really keeping it pretty locked into character each of those vignettes the characters were so interesting oh oh great yeah. oh, and like you. and they're kind of it was very tales from the crypt in a way and that there was like very um almost like little morality tales with like sure. sometimes little fucked up twist endings you know right. like yeah um i I really yeah i really loved it how did you guys go about the co-writing process you kind of said you each sort of took your own story right so we we divide up the 12 pieces so he took six i took six we kind of alternated like he wrote a piece i wrote a piece we exchanged and so we could kind of correlate them in some way so for instance Mm -hmm. um you know he has one with a toe and then i have one with the rest of the leg below oh that's right the toe is missing Right. Um, and then we went through the frame story where we wrote that chronologically mm-hmm. and he took one character and I took the other and we just sort of went back and forth. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's cool. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. The only problem is, is that, I mean, Mike and I, we have a lot of the same approaches, except he is kind of not, he writes until the ending kind of just becomes clear in the Mm -hmm. distance. Like he's, he's very visceral that way when he writes, but Mm. I, I'm a planner. So Mm. I want to know where it starts. I want to know where it ends. And then Ah. the middle kind of comes into, you know, into um, clarity for me. And so that was the only problem because I was sort of by the time we got to the middle, I'm like, okay, how are we ending this? And he's like, right. don't, I'm not sure yet. Yeah. And and so it was probably such- having you guys having these different approaches probably helped because I'm thinking I it sounds like I'm much more like him. I'm very mm-hmm. much a pantser as a writer. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. I'll have an idea of the ending, but it's it's usually pretty vague. And then I just kind of wander my way there. And that leads to lots of false starts and mm-hmm. unfinished stories on my computer. I would think if I was co-writing a novel with someone who had the same approach as me, the fucking thing would never get done. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> it would just go on and on. Yeah. And so on. in a way, like, it seems like that's that's a good balance, you know? Yeah. 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 I was also, I mean, it's interesting because I've read other things that have been two author uh, novels before. And I usually feel like I can pick out like, okay, this was written by one author. This was written by the other. And I really couldn't with pieces. I felt like you guys really kept a very consistent voice. Um, Oh, good. Was that kind of on accident or was that sort of by design? 
It was more, Mike likes to say that I'm, I'm the sort of the mechanics person and he's the story man. And I think, mm -hmm. so what we would end up doing is when we exchanged chapters, you know, he would kind of tweak the story a little bit. Okay. And I would tweak the writing. And so I, I think that that worked out perfectly. It sounds mm -hmm. like. Yeah, I really did. Okay. Yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed it. It's one of my favorite books I've read this year. Oh, great. Um, oh, and I, if, yeah, if you guys do manage to write a sequel, I'm going to be the first one. <laughs> Fantastic. So I feel like uh, before we dive into our stories, we should talk a little bit about Dancing in the Shadows. Yes. Yeah. So Dancing in the Shadows comes out actually this Sunday. When is, yeah. when is this going to yeah drop? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm trying to get this out by Friday. We'll see <laughs> if that happens. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it comes out this Sunday, May, May 22nd, mm -hmm. and it is a tribute to the late great Anne Rice, who mm -hmm. we lost in December. Um, Elaine Pascal and I co-edited um, this collection of 19 authors um, that we invited Mm -hmm. We invited writers that we knew either just were known for writing Gothic or new Gothic mm -hmm. fiction, or that we knew were so versatile that we'd seen them write all sort of different okay. types of, and so we asked, people agreed, like you, Scotty, mm -hmm. so thank you very much. <laughs> and um, I mean, people should know that no one took any money for this anthology, a hundred percent of it goes to charity. And that includes the cover artist, um, Jeanette oh, wow. Andromeda, who is fantastic. And, yeah. um, and especially the publisher, Eureka Publishing, who right. just won a Stoker Award, by yep. the way, for Toys Yeah, I was, I was there for their win. That was exciting. It's very exciting. First of all, that is, and I am not a poetry person, and I was mm -hmm. blown away by that collection. So that's, I just got to push that out there. I know I'm supposed to be talking about dancing, but Poetry <laughs> Willows, man, people pick pick that up. Yeah, I've um, got my, my copy is on its way. I haven't read it yet. Because yeah, I'm like you, I'm not typically a poetry person, but having gone to StokerCon, I think it maybe like opened the door for me to like want to explore that a little bit. Yeah, more. yeah, yeah, for sure. And, um, but yeah, Dancing in the Shadows. So it's all new Gothic stories and kind of, they're not fan fiction in any way. They're right. just sort of inspired by this Gothic revival that, that mm -hmm. Rice was such a huge part of. Right. And, and so we have stories that have really every aspect of Gothic literature you can think of from the vampires, the witches, the haunted sort of cemeteries, mm -hmm. the haunted mansions. And I think there's going to be something in there for absolutely any horror lover. And again, 100% of the money goes to Animal Rescue New Orleans, which is, yeah. you know, fantastic. And yeah. that was one of her, like, that was one of her favorite. Uh, charities wasn't it she well she's a huge animal she was a huge animal lover and right. new orleans was her home and so we yeah. when we were trying to find a charity we thought oh gosh you know we want it to be something that we know she would approve of and so right. that's why we ended up choosing it and they they were the shelter that rescued quite a few pets right after hurricane katrina so mm, yeah um, you know if, that makes sense People keep that in mind, but yeah, we're really, we're very proud to support them. And, and we hope that this also does her memory justice is what really what, how this mm -hmm. started. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was interesting, you know, the way I approached the story, cause you asked me, and I don't think of myself particularly as a writer of Gothic fiction. Mm -hmm. So I was like, this will be an interesting challenge. And I decided to do more of a modern day Gothic and I wanted to refer to her 
mm-hmm. the story without it being like you said i didn't want it to feel like fanfic i wanted it to be its own thing no it was like um, a wink you do like more of like an easter egg kind of a right wink. and yeah. so I, was, I tried to use an element and i don't want to spoil it people can read the book but i tried to use an element that is widely associated with the movie interview with the vampire and use that as like a plot point in the story yeah and that was fun and i i talked about Anne rice actually on the podcast just a few episodes ago and it really got me interested in going back and reading more of her work because it's been quite a long time since mm-hmm, i've read it mm-hmm. yeah. um so i'm excited to, i'm excited to see kind of what everyone came up with so yeah. it comes out this sunday so if this drops friday two days from now yeah um, ebook and print so so mm-hmm. yes yeah, so please absolutely absolutely yeah. give it a give it a look-see absolutely so uh well should we dive into our stories absolutely absolutely so first of all i just want to say thank you scotty for having me on here because i am a huge fan of the, <laughs> the weirdest thing and, and as a matter of fact i i was just re-listening to your cholera episode yeah. cholera episode and i thought i'm like i cannot I don't, I, how am I going to follow this? But yeah, so, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready when you are. All right. Well, okay. so I think you're going to go first. I do want to mention your your story does have like a Massachusetts theme, which I think is perfect because both of us do have, you know, Boston connections. Are you from Massachusetts? Is that where I am uh, born and raised in Massachusetts? I lived in Boston for most of my 20s and um, I'm now back in Western Massachusetts and nice. it's fine. Like I, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about winters later on. Yeah. This actually comes up in the story. And you and I have talked about winters in Boston, but I would, I I just don't think I'll end up being here forever. I'm just not a cold weather person. Yeah. I coming from, coming from the desert, uh, that was a real uh, shock to the system for me. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. Well, we'll, yeah, well, we'll, (laughs) we will get to that for sure. Um, All right. right. So I'm going to start with a cold opening. Okay. So it's January 1692 in a seaside village of Massachusetts Bay Colony. In the house of the town's pastor, nine-year-old Betty Paris and her cousin, 11-year-old Abigail Williams, begin showing signs of a mysterious ailment. They thrash about in convulsive-like fits and scream. The town's doctor can find no organic cause for their behavior and comes to the conclusion that the girls have been bewitched. Fast forward a year and a half, and at least 25 local residents are dead, not from Mm -hmm. this illness, but from being hanged, tortured, or exposed to the abominable conditions in the town's jail. This is the story of the Salem witch hysteria, the final and most deadly series of actual witch trials in America's history. Yeah, I'm I'm real excited because this is we we've touched on this off and on here, and like to really like dive in. Yeah, 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 and and I have a ton of sources, but the sources that I use most often. So sources for this summary include Salem witch trials in history and literature from the University of Virginia, Witchcraft: Eight Myths and Misconceptions by Diane Perkis at the University of Oxford, The Devil, the Body, and the Feminine Soul in Puritan New England by Elizabeth Reese, The Devil in Massachusetts by Marion Starkey, Smithsonian Magazine, All That's Interesting, The Library of Congress Law Library, and the New England Historical Society. Cool. Um, I do want to give a content warning. So there's going to be discussions of hanging, child Mm. death, and creepy body searches. And we'll just, we'll get Mm. to that in just a minute. Yeah. 
So some background. So as far as the historical records, so the details of the hysteria were actually gathered mostly from Reverend Samuel Paris's own accounts of the trials, okay. as well as a book on what occurred from Reverend John Hale, and then incidental notes from primary sources like residents' diaries. So some of the factual information doesn't really jive. Um, mm. Some names sort of are, are confused, some dates. Right. So this is what we do know. Kind of set the scene. So Salem Village and the surrounding area at this time was essentially a theocracy. Mm-hmm. Its residents were Puritans, and so they had escaped religious persecution in England. Mm-hmm. Massachusetts had been granted a colony charter by England in 1629, which meant it was allowed to self-govern as long as it sort of created laws that jived with England's. But the problem right. is the Puritans sort of broke those rules. So they <laughs> yeah. created an illegal mint. I was like, ooh, look at this, making oh. your own money without the king's face on the yeah, coins. It's like, it's like naughty, naughty. <laughs> right, yeah. And then also they established laws that discriminated against religions outside of Puritanism. Okay. And because of that, right, the charter was revoked by England in 1684. Mm-hmm. The area went through a series of governing systems until 1691 when England's William and Mary established a charter designating the area the province of Massachusetts Bay and they sat Sir William Phipps as the royal governor so they kind of had their own government kind of just instituted there and and to sort of look over what was going on with their colonists right and it's important to know that England had made witchcraft a capital crime 50 years previous and it wasn't out of the blue right so Henry Mm -hmm. VIII had made pact witchcraft which was any summoning of spirits under a deal with the devil Mm. a capital crime in 1592 and then king james had strengthened the law in 1604 so it got sort of progressively more of like a mainstream crime (laughs) up until this point that'll kind of come up in my story a little bit (laughs) right okay And, and salem is not the first witch hysteria in new england about 45 years prior to the salem witch trials there was another mm. rash of accusations throughout new england in that witch hysteria 80 people were accused 15 were executed so wow fewer oh. fewer but still still a lot. crazy <laughs> Still kind of crazy, right? And the persecution of witches was really old hat throughout Europe's history, right? Right. 1400s to the 1700s, anywhere from 30,000 to 60,000 people were executed across Europe. And most of those were actually outside of England, only about 2,000. Some sources say just as few as 500 people were actually executed due to witchcraft in England. And I was really surprised to learn this. So I was brought up Catholic, but escaped. Thank God. (laughs) Don't tell them where I am, please. (laughs) Please. Um, You and Amelia both, I think. Right. So you get it. (laughs) But I sort of assume that the Catholics were really the big like pushers of Mm -hmm. of this issue, but there were actually more Protestant religions that were persecuting witches Mm -hmm. than any other of uh, the major Western Christian denominations. So I thought that was Mm -hmm. kind of interesting. But this, yeah, I've got some, I've got some of that Protestantism in my family, and that's actually not that surprising to me. Really? Yeah. yeah, And I don't really know. Like, I just, I guess I don't really know many people that are Protestant. Isn't that, it's sort of strange. (laughs) Well, most people I know now are kind of atheist or, you know, but yeah, the the Puritans don't come out looking very 
good in this story. Yeah, I mean, they, they rarely do, I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they had some good points. So they really pushed literacy mm. and they did establish the first public school oh, um, okay. in America and the first college. Actually, Harvard University comes oh, out. Oh, that's of right. Yeah. The Puritans. Yeah. Um, but that's pretty much it. That's like, that's. that's <laughs> That's the limit for uh, why uh, Puritanism was great. So the Puritans sort of sprang out of this idea. It was this group that thought that the Church of England was still a little too popey, right? They're too Catholic still. And so they felt that they needed to purify the religion. And so they became much more rigid in their following of scripture. And they were very specific about what constituted proper behavior, And they shunned anything that hinted at vanity, idleness, superfluous, or recreation. And that's really important to know Mm -hmm. when you look at who the people who were first accused in the hysteria and sort of what they were doing and why they were they were the ones that were targeted. Right. They believed that the devil could attack the soul by penetrating the body. And, um, and I thought of mm. actually Amelia when I saw this piece. They specifically thought that women's bodies were weaker. Um, mm. You know, were, were very fragile. Yeah. And thus right. it made it easier for the devil to corrupt them. And that's mm-hmm. why so many women were accused of, of witchcraft. They believe that the devil uses used temptations such as drunkenness and carnal desires to weaken <laughs> the body's defenses, yep. making it easier for evil to infect <laughs> the soul. They believe so women could really had one, one station in life, and that was to be a good, obedient wife. Right. who birthed a lot of children, uh, preferably five to 10 to 15 children. Holy because shit. Half, right. Yeah, I don't know what's going Holy. on. I mean, yeah. already like my... <laughs> anyway, we won't even go there. Um, I have the children that were expected to die yeah. by the age of 18. So I guess yeah. they just sort of wanted to hedge their bets. It's um, like the whole heir and a spare kind of concept. The Tell me, it's, tell me more about the that. heir and a spare. So it's the idea of you get it royalty. You know, you have to have your royal heir, but then you also have to have your spare in case the heir Correct. dies. So, yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They truly believe that natural phenomenon were attributed to God or the devil, right? right? So if a person encountered misfortune, he would not question God's judgment, but he would question why it was aimed at him. Mm-hmm. And if he did not believe that he deserved punishment, he then had to blame the misfortune on the devil cursing him through the power of a witch. So if, yeah. for instance, and I, I tell my students this all the time that I kill plants and I don't mean <laughs> like, I'm just like, Oh, they, sometimes they, die. they all die. It is just <laughs> it's essentially if you give me a plant, you're sentencing it to right. death. Like that's, there's just no, um, <laughs> no way around it, but it's kind of like if someone gives me a plant and I do whatever I do to it, which is probably overwater it, ignore mm. it, whatever it is. Right. And it dies. And, but I feel like I'm a really pious person. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm going to blame the person who gave me the plant or perhaps the neighbor who spoke uh, to me crossly um, mm, the day before okay. or someone I ran into at the market who I feel that, you know, they feel they've been wronged by me. And now I think that they've, they're cursing me. So, so it seems like rat- a combination of like people rationalizing to let themselves off the hook for whatever's going on in their life but also things can't just like happen like oh, a plant dies because sometimes a plant dies it has to be like the devil or some malicious intent 
Right. And it's also a little bit of it is also just plain ignorance where, right. right. We're talking the 1600s. They're, they're not, they don't have the kind of medical and scientific knowledge that we have today. Right. And so they also believed in the concept of predestination. Mm -hmm. So this concept is that God has already chosen before a person's birth, who was destined for heaven, but you don't know who it is. Right. You have to kind of walk around like you, you're not sure, <laughs> but they also believed in this. It's almost like a socialist concept where they believed that the community was responsible for making sure the community as a whole was pious. So okay. you had to make sure that you lived a pious life, but also that your neighbor did to help facilitate that predestination. Right. Almost like a snake eating its tail. It's kind of like, yeah. are you really predestined or not? Like it's sort yeah, of, the, the logic makes my head hurt. I mean, it's just like, and it sounds like this was very much not a like live and let live kind of. Right. It's situation. very judgy. Yeah. Very judgy. Anyone who did not toe the line were known. They were essentially social pariahs or mm -hmm. just plain nuisances. Right. Right. Because they were bringing down the average. It was kind of like, you know, if you have Larry on the bowling team and he's always throwing gutter balls, let's get rid of Larry so that right. our our average goes up and, and right. sort of like that. But, you know, piousness, I guess. <laughs> so these two girls. Betty and Abigail are essentially diagnosed as being bewitched because again, the doctors just don't have that kind of knowledge. Right. So they're given this carte blanche to have this bad behavior. So mm -hmm. ch children's <laughs> children's <laughs> days were pretty much, so they get up, they might have some schooling, right? Limited schooling. But then after that, they go to work. Right. Um, so they get up, they work, they come home, eat dinner, they pray, they go to sleep. They yeah. get up, they work, they have dinner, they pray, they go to sleep. And that was it. Except yeah. Sundays, they just did a lot more praying. So yeah. it, there was nothing, no entertainment, no recreation. Right. The, in fact, the only reading really that was pushed was scripture. And so that's it. That's There wasn't even dancing, yeah. right? dancing or music. So all of a sudden they're given permission to act out. They can scream, they can yell, right. they can roll on the floor and bark like a dog. Mm -hmm. And, and they're not being blamed. Mm -hmm. And so one of the possible explanations for the hysteria is that it was just this rebellion against mm -hmm. this very draconian society and these, this rigid behavior that every, not just the children, but also yeah. the adults were sort of forced to adhere to. Right. And the hysteria also offered this passive aggressive opportunity for people to get rid of those who are seen as bringing their society down. So anyone yeah. perceived as lazy or slovenly or vain or simply mm -hmm. unpleasant, all of a sudden you sort of mention them and say, oh, they're bewitching me. And then now your problem is right. taken care of. Yeah. Which seems really callous and it is, it's very callous. Yeah. But, so at least 25 people died as a result of the hysteria. 19 were hanged, one was tortured to death. And I wanna mm. talk about that person. And at least five died in prison. The numbers mm. vary on this amount, but the minimum stated is five. Mm. More than 200 people were accused of wow. practicing witchcraft. Approximately 114 were arrested. 43 were formally tried, and of those, 27 were convicted and sentenced to death. Okay. And so the ones that avoided the hanging, they really just lucked out. They, yeah. By the time they pardoned the people, they sort of just had been, their, their time hadn't come up yet. Yeah. It sounds um, like they got through most of them. 
they did. most of the ones yeah. who were convicted yeah 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 they were they were very efficient those puritans oh. let me Ooh. tell you yeah. Um, so some of the people who were targeted, I just want to mention a few of them. So the very first person who was accused, her name was Tichaba. Mm-hmm. She was the slave held by Reverend Paris in the right. same home that Betty and Abigail lived. There are conflicting accounts on who Tichaba was. Mm-hmm. Most accounts say that she was a slave that the Reverend Paris brought back with him from Barbados. Okay. There are a few accounts that state that she may have been a Native American who, again, mm-hmm. was enslaved. Um, But regardless, because of her race and her class, she was a super easy target for the girls and no one believed her. And she was very smart because she immediately just confessed. So if you confessed to witchcraft and then promised to be good, like return Mm -hmm. to God, you were placed in jail, but you didn't lose your life. So Tichibu was like, sign me up. That's where I'm going. That's that's fine. Let me, you know, where do I sign? I mean, this sounds like the definition of like we talk about confirmation bias on here all the time. This is like institutionalized confirmation bias. It's like we want to believe you're guilty. So the only way to save your life is to admit that you're guilty. It's like absolutely. totally absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, I'm going to talk about a few of the tests and I use mm-hmm. air quotes with that, the tests right. that they use. And they were I mean, it was stacked. The deck was stacked. Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the other the first the other two of the first three that were accused, their names were Sarah. Osborne and Sarah Good. Sarah Osborne mm-hmm. um, was disliked for by most of the village because she rarely attended church services. She was okay. a widow and she was embroiled in a land dispute involving her late husband's property mm. with the wealthiest family in town and their name oh. um, was the Putnams. And oh, in- right. Okay. So, and most people have sort of heard of the Putnams in the yeah. sandwich hysteria because their name appears on more than 50% of the accusation documents wow. um, in the hysteria. So, so they were, they were just like cleaning house. Yeah. They were just taking a rubber stamp to that. Like yeah, Sarah Good, on the other hand, she was extremely poor. So she and her husband and her children were homeless. And so Sarah would wander the village begging for food, begging for money. And people found her irritating for that Mm -hmm. reason. So Osborne, they both proclaimed their innocence. Osborne died in prison just a few months after being convicted. But Sarah Good was hanged. And the, Mm -hmm. the, the really horrible part of her story is she was pregnant when they arrested her. She was actually pretty far along and she gave birth in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and the baby th- died because okay. of the absolutely atrocious conditions yeah. in the prison. And so the jail in Salem, if you can sort of imagine the entire jail, and it's really more of a dungeon because it was mm-hmm. sort of underground, measured 70 by 280 feet. So mm-hmm. not, okay. not very big. Yeah. Um, there was a kind of a common area and then cells. Right. It was completely infested with vermin, specifically mm-hmm. rats and not heated. And so this made me Mm. think of our conversation about Boston in the winter. Yeah, I was going to say, not heated in Massachusetts. Right. So the first accusations were midwinter. Okay. And we're talking Salem, so it's even more north than Boston. It is on the shore. Right. So no heat. Yeah. Did you want to comment? Tell me, (laughs) tell tell the listeners about your experience (laughs) coming to Boston. Well, I just remember my dad, who grew up in Cleveland, Um, which is not Boston, but he grew up in that like 
lake winter kind of environment. Yeah. And here I am coming from New Mexico and I had gone to college in Colorado and I went to college in Alamosa, which is like often the coldest part of the country, just in terms of temperature. Right. So I was real cocky going into Boston. It was just like, uh, I remember my dad telling me like, you're going to want to like get some warm clothes. And I was like, whatever. I used to wear shorts in the winter in Alamosa. Like, <laughs> fine. And then I ended up, I think by October, I was calling my parents for money so I could go buy like long underwear and stuff. Yeah. Because like that is a different kind of cold out there it's it's that because there's moisture in the air and so it's that it's just you feel like there's icy needles just stabbing you in the face yeah I mean part of it is definitely the fact that it's on the water I mean that Mm -hmm. makes a huge difference and it's just the wind is I don't know who set up Boston I don't know what kind of hallucinogen they were yeah. <laughs> on when they structured the streets uh, i never um, i never figured out my way around that city it's it's i mean you look at new york new york is sort of everything is in order you know, right numerically and everything and you look at boston and it's just all over the place yeah and it's just not conducive for blocking the wind coming yeah. from, from the shore so it's yeah it's terrible so well here we are. i i mean i i literally had I was walking from the T into class, so probably a five-minute walk, and my eyelids literally froze open. Like, I get yeah. inside, and I couldn't shut my eyes because my eyelids had frozen to my eyebrows. Yeah, so yeah. So that, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you definitely stay in shape in Boston just yeah. because you're walking so fast right. <laughs> to get inside, for it's sure. True. <laughs> so the, the, the dungeon, no heat, right? right? We're talking, you know, Salem, majority of the time is over the, the summer. However, no light. So the prisoners were kept in, in total darkness most mm-hmm. of the time. Right. And actually the worst part was the fact that they had constructed the jail right next to the North River. And every time there was a high tide, mm. the jail would flood. Yeah, and okay. so this made me think of Amelia's piece on cholera and mm-hmm. because there was no sanitation right. in the cells. So the prisoners were sort of standing in, you know, ankle deep water, which wasn't just the river water, but also their neighbors kind of waste. Yeah. And so it's no wonder that people just sort of just died. They died of yeah. sickness in the right. jail. Some of the accused were bound and chained. So mm. um, they weren't even able to move very much. And anyone who attempted escape was immediately executed. So the prisoners were charged for their bedding, for their food, and also for their cells, their restraints, and for their examination for witch marks, which I'll talk about in a minute. So they're like getting a bill for this shit? They are. So they're being billed. And if you did not have the money, if you were indigent, you were placed in what was known as a coffin cell. So... Mm coffin cell is exactly what it sounds like yeah. it's only sort of wide enough and deep enough for a prisoner to stand in but not to lie down in Ugh. so very similar to the standing cells in auschwitz in right. LA. i mean really just a torture device all on its own yeah, so, yeah absolutely right so sarah good would have been placed in one of those coffin cells i i just have to imagine she had given birth there Um, So it's just, I can't even, I can't even go there. But the fact that you had to pay this sort of room and board for your own cell meant that even if you were found not guilty, you still had to pay your cell fees. And if you couldn't pay for your cell, 
you remained in jail. So uh, one prisoner, Lydia Dustin, was placed in jail in April 1692. She was found not guilty in January, but she could not pay her jail fees. And so she remained in prison and she died there, actually, of two course. months later. I mean, so, uh, yeah, yeah, no wonder the Puritans don't have a good reputation. I mean, come on now. Yeah. It's just so... and. You were given water, but uh, sometimes they would withhold water from prisoners mm. in order to try to get them to confess. Right. The jail became completely overcrowded at one point. Uh, at the height of the hysteria, there were up to 150 prisoners in that tiny area. They had to mm-hmm. ship some of them to the Ipswich jail, which was slightly better because it wasn't flooding on a regular right. basis, but really not much better. Yeah. So the youngest person to be arrested for witchcraft happened to be Sarah Good's daughter. Okay. Her name was Dorcas Good. Now, in some of the records, it's Dorothy. Mm. um, And that's probably because she was four years old. And I really have to stress that and repeat it. Four four years old. years old. So the magistrates questioned her for two weeks straight. Again, four years old. Uh, trying to get her to confess. Finally, she said what they wanted to hear. I'm not sure how chatty a four-year-old is about the specifics, but she did say uh, that her mother, Sarah Good, was a witch Mm. and that she herself had a familiar, a Mm. pet snake, and that she she was also a witch. So they put her in jail with her mom, Mm -hmm. I imagine, in the coffin cell. Her mom was taken out of the cell in July and hanged, uh, but Dorcas wow. remained in the jail. Again, they were indigent, so the, the uh, right. father could not pay the jail fees. She was not released until December of that year, so she spent, a four-year-old spent uh, 10 months in wow. a coffin cell in that hellhole. I, mean, I, just, I don't know how you come back from that like the trauma is just like right yeah yeah most accounts state that she was permanently psychologically damaged i'm like i feel like Um, that's a given yeah (laughs) i mean given yeah one of the other people who are important i think to mention is bridget bishop so bridget bishop was the first person put to death in Mm. the salem hysteria she has a special place in my heart because i teach the crucible and she Mm. is awkwardly missing completely from that i don't remember that name so yeah right so she's really interesting because she had been accused of witchcraft twice previous to the Salem hysteria. I don't know if there was something witchy about her, but she had been accused in 1679 and also in 1687. Both times she was acquitted. Mm -hmm. Um, She was accused again in 1692. Now the previous two times, they seem to be linked to the fact that she was on her third husband Mm. and People kind of gossiped that maybe she had something to do with the deaths of her previous two husbands. Of course. She had been willed her second husband's property, which happened to be a tavern and Mm. um, apple orchards. And so, again, if you remember that the devil can sort of get into you through drunkenness or any sort of recreation, 
And so she was blamed for uh, men drinking too much or for playing too much shovelboard at Mm -hmm. the tavern. A number of men testified that she had sent her spirit to visit them in Mm. their beds at night. Uh, Um, Come on, guys. Right. Apparently she's very sexy. I I think I read that she was in her 60s. So good for her. Go, 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 girl, Bridget Bishop. She also... (laughs) caused some issues because she was sending lace to be dyed at Mm. the town dyer shop. I guess that was a job. Like you actually just dyed fabric. That was your thing. And she was dropping off pieces of lace and people in town believed it was either to make poppets that were being used as voodoo dolls Uh or for pieces for her underlings, which means she just wanted some sexy lingerie to keep Mm -hmm. the third husband happy, I guess. Mm -hmm. And that was a no-no. That's just a no-no. And so that, and she was known to wear a red dress. So yeah. So people just assume. Immediately guilty. Right. 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 Red dress. You think, oh, you know, devil fiery but it was more that red dye was extremely expensive and so Mm -hmm. it was thought to be very vain to waste your money on Mm, on clothing on dyeing your clothing sure so she had all of these things stacked against her she's immediately accused found guilty and uh, was the they immediately put her to death and she was one of the few prisoners who was hanged all by herself they tried to actually do like group executions i'm not sure why that was Mm -hmm. but she was all by herself the land that she once owned it was an apple orchard it's now turner's seafood in salem mass which is in church street in salem right so people say that they see her ghost that she actually haunts Mm. turner's seafood okay makes sense and speaking of specters that's my that's my segue <laughs> part. So one of the things that's really unique about the Salem hysteria is that spectral evidence was allowed in the court. And spectral evidence, this is the only time really in US legal history that spectral evidence was allowed, was during this, this period right. of Puritan colonialism. Essentially, someone could testify that their neighbor was sending their spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, even if no one else could see this ghost or spirit, it was accepted as fact. And right. so the girls and the other accusers often stated that the person was bewitching them through a bird or a right. dog or um, just sending their spirit. So you could physically, you could have that alibi that like, no, I was home and everyone saw me there. But the person accusing you like, could just say, right. If, I, if I want you dead, I can just be like, no, 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 no. That bird over there, that was you. Exactly. And everyone's just like, well. That tracks and then. Well, right. And it's kind of like, you know, how are you going to fight that? No, you can't. Right. And so spectral evidence was used. And this once spectral evidence was not allowed in court, all of a sudden, all of the pending cases fell apart. And that kind of contributed to the end of the hysteria. So maybe they should have thought of that earlier. But one of the victims of the hysteria is absolutely my favorite individual from all of American history. I okay. absolutely love this person. He was a horrible person in real life. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> His name was Giles Corey. Right, 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 right. Yeah. He owned a lot of land in Salem, but mm-hmm. he was not a great guy. He mm-hmm. had been found guilty of pummeling his farmhand to death 
20 Ooh, years okay. before the hysteria. And um, he was found guilty and made to pay a fine. I'm not quite sure how that tracks yeah. where if you're a witch <laughs> you get hanged but if you're gonna be if you're pummeling yeah. like your random farmhand it's like just here here's a couple bucks. well i mean it oh. sounds like if you're poor you get hanged and if you're rich you get to pay a fine right yeah. however things didn't work out too well for giles in this right. situation he had ties to the porter family so at this time, there was this kind of Hatfield and McCoy situation going on mm. between the Putnams and the Porters. And they oh, were the two those Putnams again. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And so because Giles Corey had been friends and, and uh, just had an alliance with the Porters, the Putnams immediately kind of went after him and his wife, uh-huh. Martha. Giles's wife, Martha, was arrested for witchcraft in March right of 1692 okay and giles joined her in jail in april he remained there until his trial in september but he was kind of convinced like he had seen all of these people go through the quote court system right he knew that it was pretty much a done deal like he was they were going to go after him they were going to find him guilty so under british law a conviction for witchcraft did not result in forfeiture of your property however The sheriff had been illegally seizing the property of those who were imprisoned. Okay. So even though it was against the law, the sheriff was still doing it. And because Giles Corey had so much land and he was so afraid of losing it, he knew he was going to be put to death. He ended up deeding it to his sons-in-law. Okay. So the land was all taken care of, but he was, this is why I like him so much. So he was just so disgusted with this entire process and what was Mm -hmm. going on in the town that when he was asked to enter a plea, he quote stood mute. Um, Mm -hmm. He stated that he refused to quote, be tried by God in my country. And now in America, we can have people take the fifth. You still have to enter some sort of plea Giles refused to enter a plea. And under the law, you have to submit yourself to trial. And under Mm -hmm. British law, if you don't, you are given the sentence of, and you have to excuse my French because it's absolutely horrible, but pain fort et deux, which means hard and forceful punishment. Mm -hmm. This form of torture was illegal in the Massachusetts colony because here's one bright part of the Puritan government. The Puritans believed that this was particularly brutal and Mm -hmm. cruel punishment. So they had outlawed it, but it was still jiving in in England. Mm -hmm. And so he was given this punishment. And basically what this entailed, and I sent you a, there's a, there's a picture that I think Mm -hmm. you're going to put on um, where people can see what this looked like. There's an illustration. He was made to, to lie down on the ground next to the jail in the field next to the jail they placed a board across his body and then piece by piece uh heavy weights were placed upon the board and Mm -hmm. so basically the sheriff said what's your plea Corey?" and he refused to answer and so they put a rock Mm -hmm. and not we don't talk i don't mean like a rock i mean like a rock like a boulder kind of like a boulder right so they put it on the board he's still not talking what's your plea nothing more you know rock after rock after rock giles refused to answer how long do you think this process went on scotty so i've heard of this story but i've never heard how long i'm gonna say eight hours three days what three days wow 
how <laughs> right. like how do you not be dead before right that? and giles Corey was either in his 70s or his 80s and i wow. like to call i like to call giles Corey the og of american history <laughs> because yeah. Not only did he survive three days, he did die at the end. He did finally utter one phrase before he died. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like, he's saying something, the sheriff, the way that the story goes, the sheriff kind of leans down. He's like, what's that? What's that, Corey? Mm-hmm. And all he said was more weight. Right. Like, yeah. bring it. Bring a, it. He's, I mean, aside from the whole pummeling your field hand to death yeah. or whatever, like he sounds like kind of a badass. He is definitely a badass. Definitely yeah. a badass. Yeah, I, I, I frown upon pummeling your, your farm <laughs> hands. I'm not. Yeah, we, we can. We, I think we can safely take that stance here. Yeah, but otherwise, so Giles Corey, man. Yeah. And so when someone was found outside of Giles Corey, who was the one tortured to death. All of these prisoners who were successfully put to death were put to death by hanging. Mm. And I really want to stress, because this is actually a sore spot for me, when I see television shows or movies that have um, convicted witches being burned Mm. at the stake in America, that never happened. That never happened. No one was ever, unless, I mean, maybe they did it in secret, but that wasn't the traditional Mm -hmm. um, punishment. So even according to everything that I was reading about the witch trials across Europe, no one was ever burned in England either. Mm -hmm. Even Scotland, they did burn witches, but they strangled them first. So it was like, oh, well, now we're just getting rid of the dead body, like kind of a situation. Well, they used to do that with vampire people they thought were vampires, too, is like they would dig up the dead body and burn it because they're in burn it. Right. It's kind of like, uh, you know, more of a protective thing. Right. Yeah. Sure. Sure. But um, Hollywood needs to just they need to stop (laughs) spreading that lie, please. Yeah. Um, So here's the content warning about hanging. So Mm -hmm. death by hanging can be a a quick death. And actually hanging was the chief method of execution in America, really up until the end of the 19th century. Right. And hanging was an option. Like Mm -hmm. you could choose hanging um, in Delaware and Washington all the way up to 2016 and 2018, which is when the states actually got rid of their death Mm -hmm. penalty. They could do that or lethal injection. It's like, oh, Mm -hmm. what do you want? But generally, not so much, obviously, in the 17th century, but 19th century, 20th century, if they were putting someone to death by hanging, it was they did incorporate some physics and sort of forethought because Mm -hmm. they wasn't supposed to be a torturous right. sort of death. And the way that they would try to ensure that was by weighing the prisoner the day before and then measuring out, I am not a math person, so I can't <laughs> wrap my head around what yeah. kind of computation you need to make here, but the length of the rope mm-hmm. so that when the person is sort of you know pushed, their neck would break relatively fast and they right. wouldn't strangle on the rope. However, in Salem... Um, people tended to, because it was just like climb up a ladder, like put your you know noose mm-hmm. on and then we'll take the ladder away. They often um, strangled for up to 10 minutes. Yeah. And so that's like, we, that's a different kind of hanging. It, it really is. And, and this was a public event. I mean, people yeah. gathered, they really flocked to these executions. Each of the executed victims, including Giles Corey, 
were excommunicated from the church. And after they were killed because mm-hmm. they had been excommunicated, their bodies were not allowed to be buried in hollowed ground. Right. So their bodies were just sort of dumped in yeah. a nearby ditch. And then family members had to sneak under cover of night to recover the bodies and then mm. bury them in secret, which okay. is just an extra kind of slap in the face. Yeah, um, that's awful. So the witchcraft tests. So in order to ensure that they got the right person, <laughs> uh, there would be a series of, and again, I'll use heavy air quotes, um, <laughs> right. tests. So the water test, which actually was not used in America, but it was used in England. Mm-hmm. It's also called swimming a witch. Mm-hmm. And so this is when the suspected witch would have his or her arms bound. Okay. And then the accused yeah. was thrown in a body of water. Right. And the idea was, oh, if the person rose to the surface, they were a witch. If they sank, uh, I guess you're not a witch. Um, they did. But sort of too late. Kind of. Right. I mean, they did try to put a rope around your waist so they can kind of pull you out, but people did die. They did uh, drown sure. accidentally. Yeah. And if you did rise to the surface, they gave you another shot at it. They instead, so then <laughs> they, they so now you're sopping wet and they've dragged you from the water and now they would bind the person's legs. Mm-hmm. So now they can't move at all again, thrown into the water. I mean, the good news was if they managed to pull you out after sinking, like, yay, you're not a witch, but that often didn't happen usually. I'm just always amazed by like the, I guess you would say ingenuity of, of people, the imagination of people. Like, where do you come up with the idea that like, if you float, you're a witch. So you come up, devise this whole thing. It's just like the, the connections that need to happen in your brain. Okay. So the rationale behind it is Mm -hmm. that it sort of mimics baptism and they believed that if the devil were in you, you would have to eschew that, that sort of rite of baptism and try to get away from the water as fast as possible by rising to the top of it, I guess. I mean, I Uh, guess I can follow. Yeah. Yeah. You really gotta want it. You gotta want it. I think at that point. Um, yeah. So Salem didn't use that test, they don't think, because it sort of had lost favor by the end of the 17th okay. century. Yeah. They did use three other tests. So the mm. touch test, which I find to be very, I mean, just ridiculous. I mean, I just don't know the name touch test, I'm kind of cringing. So touch test is so if <laughs> so if I'm accusing you, Scotty, mm-hmm. of bewitching me. The mm-hmm. idea was they would bring you in and if you touched my shoulder while I was kind of having these fits and I mm-hmm. stopped having the fit, that showed that you were a witch because the rationale that if you touch the person that you're victimizing, your spirit would be forced to return back uh-huh. to your body. So that would, I mean, how I mean, easy just, is that to fake? It just never occurred to any of these people that people could be faking this stuff like um i mean i i not to the courts i guess i mean i, I don't mean know. it sounds like it just, occurred to giles Corey, but yeah i'm i i would i would say most <laughs> certainly i mean yeah. i don't know if the courts were just full of such sadists that this was or because mm-hmm. really the puritan lifestyle was just such a downer that they just wanted some sort of entertainment and uh, this sort of like really it. malicious torturing of their neighbors was like Right. No Netflix. Let's just, you know, try to get Bob next door. Yeah. Well, it's just because all of these tests, quote mm-hmm. unquote, are, 
right. procedures. I mean, they're just designed for you to die at the end. Like they're Correct. designed for you to be convicted and for you to be killed. Right. So stacked against you. Exactly. And I guess it's a way for them to maybe sleep at night because they're like, well, Mm -hmm. we did throw her in the water and we tried (laughs) kind of a deal. But um, so one of the other tests was uh, the witch cake test, which is. Oh, I've heard of this. Really revolting. right? Right. So when Betty Paris and Abigail Williams first developed symptoms of bewitchment, a neighbor suggested making a witch cake. And so Mm -hmm. this is a supposed test from folklore. Ingredients for a witch cake include urine from Mm -hmm. the afflicted person, ash and rice flour, which was then baked. And I'm sure the kitchen smelled absolutely delightful after that. Yeah. Um, And then fed to the household pet, the dog. Right. And the idea was that witches were able to infuse their magic into a victim's body. So any product from the body, urine, Mm -hmm. blood, sweat, what have you, would contain the essence of that witch. So if you feed it to the dog and it acts strangely, I'm not sure exactly what the qualifications yeah, the for dog. that is. Um, he just ate urine. I feel like, yeah. <laughs> I, feel like I feel like he's gonna act strangely, whether right. it's blowing it up or, or being like, no, you know, yeah. I'm not cuddling with you tonight. Right. You just fed me pee. <laughs> so that was sort of the test to see if the person was really being bewitched. This may or may not be connected, but in a addition to the human beings that were put to death in the Salem hysteria, two dogs were actually shot under mm. suspicion of which being, being witches. Okay. Um, I'm yeah. not, I'm not entirely certain how that rationale came about. Yeah. So the witch cake. So the creepiest test of all of them is the examination for witch marks. Mm-hmm. So the Puritans believe that when a person made a pact with the devil, the devil marked them with his claw or teeth. Mm-hmm. And that resulted in a witch mark. Now, this mark could be something that resembled an extra nipple. Mm-hmm. So Mark Wahlberg, watch out. Why do I know that? It's just a piece of Boston trivia, I guess, that everyone knows. Sorry, I don't mean to out you, Mark Wahlberg, and your third nipple. Um, so it could be an extra nipple or even a strange looking mole or freckle. Mm-hmm. When a person was arrested on suspicion of witchcraft, he or she was taken to the jail in chains and then made to strip naked where his or her body would be carefully scrutinized for one of these marks. Now it was supposed to be by mm-hmm. a group of someone of the same gender, but it's still creepy. Yeah. It's still creepy. And making the whole process even more disgusting was the fact that supposedly the mark most often appeared on the perineum. So mm-hmm. there was a particularly detailed examination, a little like an OBGYN, I guess, mm-hmm. examination of the area, including the pricking of any suspicious marks to see if they bled. Ooh. And as someone that is full of freckles, I feel like if you could, if you poked any of them with something sharp, they would bleed because I'm a human being. Skin, (laughs) I mean. Right, right. One record states that Bridget Bishop was examined and Mm. found to have a skin tag. But when she was examined again the following day, it had withered and nearly Mm. disappeared, causing her examiners to believe that the devil had shrunk it to protect his minion. Again, Um, they just talk themselves into whatever they need to believe. Right. It was thought that if a person was in league with the devil, he or she could not recite scripture. But while on the scaffold, George Burroughs, the former minister, 
mm -hmm. of a neighboring town, recited the Lord's Prayer in full, and yet he was still executed. It was kind of like he recited the prayer, and they were yeah. like, "Well, I guess that that trick is you know old yeah. hat or whatever." The, however, they rationalized it. Right. So again, just like we were saying, the game was pretty fixed. Right? Yeah, they just wanted to kill these people, so they were going to come up with whatever reason they could. Exactly, exactly. And there are a number of theories on the causes. Again, there was the rebellion one. There is the rivalries theory, right, that mm -hmm. have to do with the Porters and the Putnams, because people were pretty much on one side or the other. Mm -hmm. um, a number of theorists believe that land lust drove much of the accusations because mm -hmm. the sheriff was seizing land and then putting it up for auction. Sure. And um, the Putnams, sure enough, did grab a lot of that land yeah so there is one map that shows the pattern of accusations versus um, sort of the accusers versus the ones being accused and that does lend some credence to that theory but yet mm -hmm. there's yet another map that seems to disprove it and it seems to be more random mm -hmm. so okay. again we just don't know there are the biological theories and i know that mm -hmm. you you touched on this when you covered yeah. the dancing plague right so some theorize that the girl's symptoms may have been due to accidental ingestion of the fungus ergot. Right. So one of the primary crops in Salem at the time would have been rye. And mm -hmm. ergot is a fungus that grows on rye. Right. And the fungus thrives in damp climates. And again, like you were saying, unlike the Southwest, um, the Northeast tends to mm -hmm. have very wet springs, wet winters, right. right? Ergot or ergotism causes headaches, mm -hmm. muscle spasms, vomiting, and in extreme cases, seizures, delusions, and hallucinations. Right. Which sort of, if you look at how the girls were uh, supposedly acting, it does seem to align with that. Yeah. The infected grain could have been stored and then ingested during the winter months, right? Mm. When these symptoms first appeared. However, rye and wheat are typically harvested in July. So it seems strange that the afflictions would continue well into the late summer. Yeah. Because there would have been a new crop by that point. Yeah. Um, okay. And it only affected some residents and not all of them. And it mm -hmm. didn't always affect all of the people in the same household. Mm -hmm. And they would be eating the same food. So that. Right. Yeah. You would think it would be more across the right. board. Exactly. Exactly. A second theory involving the organic cause of the afflictions was that the town underwent an outbreak of encephalitis lethargica, which hmm. is an inflammation of the brain. So symptoms okay. of that disorder, very similar to ergot poisoning, right? Headache, double vision, stiffness in the neck, tremors, lethargy, mm -hmm. and behavioral changes. Right. However, in early 20th century outbreaks of the disorder, a third of the affected patients died from the disease and another mm -hmm. third suffered long-term neurological symptoms. And there's no reports of any of the afflicted having or dying right from being okay. afflicted or having any sort of long-term illness yeah, right, or impairment. Okay. So again, we just don't know. I mean, it could have just been this weird, perfect storm where mm -hmm. maybe there was some ergot poisoning, but people also wanted land and there was, you know, sort of rivalries and people were just 
fed up with being Puritans. I mean, it seemed right. like a real downer <laughs> yeah. um, to live that well, lifestyle. When you're talking about the, and I'm forgetting her name now, was it Sarah Osborne, the woman who was uh, having the, the the dispute with the Putnams? Yes, the Os- yes, Sarah Osborne. That just immediately reminded me of, if you go back to our very second episode, Slutty for Satan, uh, it reminds me of the theories about what happened to Elizabeth Bathory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, she was a widow and people wanted her husband's shit and went right. after her you know right oh absolutely absolutely yeah. and i guess i mean not being sociopaths you and i are kind of like why would someone do that right. how could they come right. to sleep at night but i mean i guess yeah. if that's you know that's your thing that's your thing yeah, if um, you have no conscience you'll do whatever you want you know? right exactly and it wasn't really until in important individuals namely the mother-in-law of one of the judges Mm-hmm. The wife of Reverend John Hale and the wife of the royal governor were accused huh. that all of a sudden the hysteria started to wind so, down. Yeah, at a certain point, people are like, okay, you're, you're not going to actually like murder the governor's wife. Right. Like, it's kind of right. like the governor's like, hold on now. Now you can <laughs> kill phone. like, you know, Jim Smith over there, but right. <laughs> you're not killing my wife. Right. So in October of 1692, Massachusetts church leaders called for a day of fasting across the state in the hope that it would invoke spiritual guidance on what to do about the hysteria. But Mm -hmm. um, surprise, surprise, like nothing came to them. (laughs) Um, And so Governor William Phipps declared that the testimony of spectral occurrences would no longer be accepted as evidence without the spectral evidence. Most of the pending cases fell apart. And finally, in May of 1693, the nearly 150 residents still imprisoned for witchcraft were discharged and allowed mm-hmm. to return home as long as their imprisonment fees were paid up. Ugh, so, I still can't get over that. And right. then they're returning home probably to their neighbors who were the ones accusing them. Right. And here's the other thing. So their records were not cleared right away. Mm hmm particularly these people who were executed, they were still excommunicated from the church. They were still known as quote witches, right? right? So in October of 1710, the Massachusetts general court cleared the records of all of those convicted for witchcraft. If your family petitioned the court for it. So Mm. people who had no descendants like Bridget Bishop, right. Actually retained that, uh, that guilty, verdict mm-hmm. all the way up until the end of the 20th century believe it wow. or not it wasn't until actually i believe 2001 i don't that, feel like um, i remember it being on the news that they were like we're sorry guys pardoning yeah. witches Oops, from, we're, yeah, yeah we're a little late on this <laughs> right. sorry about the tardiness yeah um <clears throat> so two months after those those some you know some of the families actually received some some cleared records for their lost loved ones the families received a settlement of 578 pounds 12 mm. shillings as compensation for the wrongdoing now mm-hmm. that was the total amount right over all of the families so this amount was split between 24 relatives now i did again some basic math mm-hmm. um, tried to look at what the inflation ratio was and so the settlement ended up to be about 51,400 in today's okay. dollars divided among 24 relatives yeah, so that's not a lot it's like 2000 a person right. for your 
loved one being tortured in jail and then hanged but i you guess you can't like, even buy like a used kia with that exactly right yeah. Yeah, exactly at age 26 ann putnam jr one of the accusing girls addressed the congregation in salem village formally apologizing for her role in the hysteria so mm-hmm. in the letter she wrote which the new minister read out loud she stated i justly fear that i have been instrumental with others though ignorantly and unwittingly, I don't know about Mm -hmm. that part, Mm -hmm. um, to bring upon myself and this land the guilt of innocent blood. Mm -hmm. As I was a chief instrument in accusing goodwife nurse and her two sisters, I desire to lie in the dust and be humbled for it. Mm. So she was kind of like, um, oops. Yeah. I lied. I lied and like, yeah. I mean, that's a lot of words to basically say oops. Right. I mean, the only justice, I guess, is that um, both of her parents died only seven years after the hysteria. They were both rather in in not great health. And Anne herself died from a long illness at the age Mm. of 37. There are a number of memorials dedicated to the victims of the Salem witch hysteria, but most of them actually weren't erected until the end of the 20th century. It was kind of like Mm -hmm. this, this dark history that no one really talked about. I I remember I hadn't heard about it until I think I was in high school and we were allowed to do a research paper on just a piece of American history. And I just was like, I don't know what I'm going to choose. And I remember the teachers Mm -hmm. sort of throwing things out there. And she said, oh, the Salem witch hysteria. I'm like, what? Witch? Yeah, this sounds awesome. So Mm -hmm. because here I'm at 16, the exact same person I am at this age. (laughs) Um, I'm like intrigued. Yes. So it never came up in my history class. And that's interesting to me because you're in massachusetts i think about you know being from new mexico in new mexico history i feel like we were being taught about things like the pueblo revolts and and, you know (laughs) these dark parts of you know the conquistadors and right i feel like right i was learning about that stuff in school so i wonder why in massachusetts they're like nope we don't want to talk about it well especially because i grew up in springfield which is in western mass and one Mm -hmm. of the very first witch trials was right there in springfield in fact Mm -hmm. the first witch i guess to die as a result she wasn't executed but she had died after being accused she was living in springfield at the time Mm -hmm. but it Mm -hmm. wasn't anything that i even knew about until much later on until i was i think an adult really So the two major memorials that are in Salem now, there is one um, that was erected just about five years ago, and it's called Proctor's Ledge. And I think the the pictures are actually um, in the series that I gave you. It's Mm -hmm. now uh, determined to be the area where um, the people were hanged and where sort of their bodies were thrown into that ditch. So now it's the semicircle. It's it's very classy. Mm -hmm. Um, It's actually around the corner of where I lived in Salem for a year. Interesting. <laughs> so I'm like, ooh. And it's um it's around the corner from Proctor Street. And John Proctor okay. was one of the 19 that were hanged. There's also a larger Salem Witch Memorial that is located right next to Old Bearing Point Cemetery in Salem. Mm-hmm. That is the oldest cemetery in Salem. It's one of the mm-hmm. oldest cemeteries in the entire United States. Mm-hmm. The ironic part about the location is that Judge John Hawthorne, who was one of the major magistrates in the Salem witch hysteria, 
-hmm. is buried right there in old Bering Point Cemetery. So it's almost as if his grave overlooks the 19 victims who are given their own miniature memorials within that that larger memorial. Nobel Peace Prize winner and author Elie Wiesel, Holocaust Mm -hmm. survivor Elie Wiesel, was there to dedicate the memorial. Interesting. And his words were actually, I'd written this down. If I can't stop all of the hate all over the world in all of the people, I can stop it in one place within me, adding, we still have our Salem's. Mm. So, but that's the story of the Salem witch hysteria, the largest wow. and deadliest witch hunt in America's history. That's really fascinating because like, I mean, I, I think I knew about it as a kid, but just in like, there was like a TV movie when I was a kid, I think that was about Did they it. burn the witches? Because they probably did. They probably did in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Hollywood. I think that's the first I ever heard of an obviously reading the crucible in high school and stuff. So I knew like broad strokes of it. What was interesting to me is when I, and I've mentioned it on this podcast, when I lived out there and we, when we went up to Salem at the time, it sounds like they've got some decent memorials now at the time. I was like, yeah, you guys aren't taking this Salem history as seriously as you probably should. It felt real tacky. Yeah. In fact, the statue to, uh, I want to say Elizabeth Montgomery Mm-hmm. the star of bewitched um yeah. there's a statue of her um, uh, yeah. right down the street from salem state i remember her i think state. they were just putting that up when i was there and we even right. at, at the time i was just like what the fuck are you doing yeah <laughs> so that's there for like everyone to drive past but the, mm-hmm. the memorials you really have to seek out it's um yeah it's i mean it's a shameful event in our yeah in, America's history. And even when I talk to my students about it, when I teach the crucible, you know, they always repeat, understandably, like this really happened. I'm like, Mm -hmm. yeah, this really happened. And then in these subsequent, you know, sort of witch hunts like McCarthyism, which is Mm -hmm. what Arthur Miller had written the crucible, you know, as an allegory of, right. They'll continue. I mean, they still continue to happen. Yeah. I mean, they're happening right now. Correct. Yes. Um, what just real quick before we move on, what is uh, so what is the theory that you tend to believe about what caused it? Well, I'll tell you, as 16 um, year old me who did my re- research <laughs> paper on it, and I'll just do a shout out to that English teacher. Like, uh, Eleanor Dry was her name mm. and she was pretty awesome. I ended up taking the stance that it was landlust. Mm-hmm. Because at the time, I do remember seeing the exact maps that I stumbled across mm-hmm. when doing this research. But since then, there have sort of been more primary documents who, that have been dug up. And so mm-hmm. now I just I really do think it's just one of these terrible situations where we had Puritan law. We also had the law was sort of in flux because mm-hmm. the charter had been yanked away. Right. But you know, England hadn't really gotten their their feet into our soil to be able to mm-hmm. say like, no, like this is what the law is going to be now. So it was this weird in between right. portion of the law. So all of these things like Giles Corey's punishment, like the seizing of the land mm-hmm. slipped in and it was just a perfect storm. I mean, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, hearing you talk about it and what I've read about in the past, I've tended to think it was something that started with the girls, whether it was a game to them, whether, like you said, it was rebellion, whether it was ergotism, something like that, you know, who knows, but it started with them and escalated. And I do think, I have to think that at the very least, the Putnams were exploiting it. 
Like they were getting theirs out of this. So I think it was maybe a combination of things. Sure, sure. And it's a new world. I mean, people are out to get land. I mean, they they right. they came here to escape religious persecution, but at the same time, it's kind of like, look, we have all of this, la- like, it's just mm-hmm. ours for the taking, which unfortunately mm-hmm. was like sort of the American way. Um, right. The entire time we expanded across <laughs> yep. the country. Yeah. yeah. And again, like you're saying, I mean, it's, it's one of these phenomenon where maybe at the time people were a little, you know, sort of unsure, like, is this really happening? But they didn't take steps to stop it. Mm-hmm. And yet we have all of these subsequent witch hunts right throughout mm-hmm. history where people are like, oh, this doesn't feel right, but yeah. it's still continuing well, to kind of grow. Well, and I think I'll use that as a segue. So speaking of witch hunts, yes, we're going to get into a more recent one that we have definitely mentioned several times on the podcast in the past, but I really kind of want to get into it. So we're going to talk about, uh, well, before I get into it, let me just start with a cold open. In, in, okay. in tribute of Amelia, I like that we both have cold opens here. So my story begins in 1976 in Victoria, British Columbia, a woman named um, now I've seen her name listed different ways. I think is Michelle Proby or Michelle Smith. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if one was like her maiden name, one's a married name. I'm not sure what's going on there. Or like a but pseudonym, then, maybe. Perhaps. Okay. But a woman named Michelle Smith, uh, she called into her psychiatrist. She was she had already been seeing this guy for a few years. His name was Lawrence Pazder, and he was from the Fort Royal Medical Center. He worked at the Fort Royal Medical Center in uh, Victoria, British Columbia. So a little bit about Dr. Pazder. He had studied psychiatry at McGill University in Montreal. He was a fellow in the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons. He had studied tropical medicine before that. It was a very uh, like distinguished psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Here's a quote from... I'll get to this. I'll get back to this in a little bit, but here's a quote about him from a book about him. It says he was a handsome man in his early forties. Dr. Pazder was warm, manly, soft-spoken, what people who live elsewhere consider the typical Westerner. He was lithe and athletic, a tennis player and skier, and had earned a brown belt in judo. His hair was brown, beginning to turn to silver. What's funny about this quote is that it was written by Lawrence Pazder himself in, in <laughs> In the book, which I'm going to be talking about shortly, but I just I just love his like third person. He was a typical Westerner, lithe and athletic. Like his dating, that's like his dating profile. <laughs> right, it's, right there. that's totally his Tinder profile. <laughs> <laughs> he was also devoutly Catholic. And that's going to be uh, important. So like I said, Michelle, she'd been seeing him for a few years, but she called into him. This is 1976 because she had just suffered a miscarriage and the grief from this miscarriage had sent her into a deep depression. Specifically, when she had suffered the miscarriage, she was in the hospital and they moved her into the cancer ward where her mother had recently died. This kind of triggered her. She went into like a panic attack. She felt like she was dying too. Mm-hmm. This scared her. So she had her doctor at the time call Dr. Pazder. He said, okay, let's, let's get into this. So he started upping her therapy. Like she'd already been seeing him, but he was like, let's, let's go deeper. She was talking about her family, you know, her history. And then as they were getting into the therapy, a couple strange things happened. The first was during one session, she started reporting like things like dreams where she was scratching itchy spots on her hands, mm-hmm. which would then disgorge a flood of spiders. Oh, so that's, you know, that's a fun Unpleasant. dream. Shortly after that, in the middle of a session, she started screaming. It wouldn't stop for 25 minutes. Oh, my. At the end of this 
her screaming, he finally was able to get her, like, get her calmed down, at which point she started talking to him, like, in the voice of a five-year-old. Okay. So at this point, Dr. Pazder's like, hmm, something's going on here. Now, his his expertise is in tropical medicine. Well, he had, he had started with that. And it's interesting. He had like, he has interest, he had interest in like African religions and stuff, Mm -hmm. but he had then gone on to McGill and, and become a psychiatrist. Okay. 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 Um, but yeah, so we have this, you know, she starts screaming, then she regresses to being a five-year-old. He's thinking, okay, there's something deeper going on here. So let's like really get into it. They continued their sessions for about 14 months. She spent a total of 600 hours under hypnosis, oh. under her supervision, mm-hmm. at which point she began, quote, recovering memories. Right, right. Which detailed horrific, quote, ritualized abuse that was committed to uh, upon her by her mother Virginia and others 20 years earlier between 1954 and 1955 when Michelle was just five years old okay. according to her and according to these recovered memories her mother had been a part of a satanic cult so this is the story of the book Michelle Remembers written by Michelle Smith and Lawrence Pazder and the start of the satanic panic yes this is yeah. going to be so interesting. Okay. <laughs> and it really, it, it marries with your story so well, because it really is, you know, it's that confirmation bias we're talking about. It's like, if you really want to find a way to believe something, you're going to find a way oh, to believe absolutely. something. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And this, if I'm not mistaken, this really like snowballed out of control. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll get to it, but it, it's arguably still snowballing to this yeah. day. Uh, yeah, yeah. So let's talk just in broad strokes a little bit about the satanic panic. And I know I've talked about it. If you go back to the Choose Dolly episode um, where I talk about the black metal murders, mm-hmm. um, that's where I really kind of talk about like the way that heavy metal music was targeted during this time right. period. Yeah. But there's a lot more to it than <laughs> than that. So it lasted roughly from 1980 into kind of the early mid 1990s. I think if you want to understand like what led to the satanic panic, you have to look at like what was going on in culture at the time. So like I talked about this on our Paula's dad, Elvis lives episode, oh, where, like, which I love. It's actually one of my favorite <laughs> episodes. That, you guys that was a, yeah, that was a fun one, but that one, like, I didn't even realize until doing the research, it kind of like that era was what kind of set the stage for the satanic panic, uh-huh. because this is what like parents were already like real worried about rock and roll music and, you know, Chuck Berry and Elvis, Pre- like, you know, Amelia talked about, you know, the Sulva hips, Elvis right. Presley, right. Everyone was so scandalized. And then in the mid sixties, rock music started getting real weird. And yep. that's where you get the Beatles got real weird. You got the Rolling Stones with their satanic majesty's request. This is the rise of psychedelia, of drug culture, hippie culture, anti-Vietnam protests. All of a sudden, like the world order, or I should say the American order that was really sort of a phony thing is really from like the mid forties through the 1950s is what we're talking about. Yeah. It kind of gotten upended. Yeah. Um, yeah. And all of a sudden the kids are going crazy you know and they're growing their hair long and they're smoking dope and then the music like the music starts getting weird with the beatles and then you have the manson family sure yeah in in 1969 summer of 1969 around the same time all of a sudden this weird rock and roll music started getting really loud with bands like led zeppelin and specifically black sabbath Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then at the same time, you have this rise of like devil worship narratives in pop culture, kind of starting with Rosemary's Baby, obviously, which mm-hmm. is 
The book, I want to say, was like 1965 or 1966. I could be wrong about the date. The movie, I think, is 1968. I think so. Or 69. Yeah. 68 or 69. So, again, it's right around the time of the Manson family. Mm -hmm. This, of course, led to The Exorcist, which, as I talked about, was supposedly based on a true story. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, that turned into like, like, obviously, I was born towards the end of this decade. So I wasn't around for when The Exorcist came out. But when you read about it, it's kind of crazy. Like that movie was a hit the way like Avatar was in 2000. Yes. Like it yes. was like everybody was watching The Exorcist. And I believe and I, I may be completely wrong on this. And I'm so sorry if I am. But I believed it was banned for a while in Great Britain. I think so. If I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah, because of, it, you know, it was just so shocking. It was shocking, but it was also like really divisive with like Christian communities in this country because there were people who were like, do not go see this movie. This movie is, you know, the work of the devil. And then there were a lot of people who were being like, you have to see this movie because this is a warning about the dangers of the devil, you know? Right. You know, and then you end up with, you know, movies like The Omen. And it's just, like you said, it's snowballing. I think so much of this is based on the terror the parents were feeling about just the cultural changes and what it was doing to their children. Oh, of course. Of course. I mean, I'm sure that, I mean, their anxieties had to go somewhere. Right. So they have to find a scapegoat and you know, what better scapegoat than. Well, and and this is, you know, the same time period you have the introduction of like the birth control pill, you have Roe versus Wade, which is of course in the news right now you have, you know, women taking control of their own sexuality and their own uh, reproductive freedom. And this is freaking out the world order of like you said women are breeders they're here to have good christian children and right right this is all just getting turned it's just like table flip yeah you know? it's the era is really being pushed the era is being pushed absolutely um you know interracial marriage has been legalized yeah. with loving versus virginia i mean so there's a segment of this country that was just not prepared to accept any of this Right. A big chunk. I, I actually a big suspect. chunk. <laughs> yeah. 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 It wasn't wasn't like a, a minority or anything. It was like right. a, it was like a full on probably most of the country. Right. Um, certainly anyone over like, say, 40 years old. And in the middle of this, the book Michelle Remembers just drops like an atom bomb. Right. Um, right. So let's just talk in general about the satanic panic. Michelle remembers the book was released in 1980. And that's, it's really seen like most people point to Michelle remembers as the spark that really yeah. like set the fire that became the satanic panic. So let's just talk about some of the big events. And I really condense this because if you go down the rabbit hole of the satanic panic, it's never ending. Oh, I believe There's it. so many crazy conspiracy theories and things that happened and just getting into the preschool ritual abuse things, which right. I'm going to touch on as I get into the story. But, you know, the most famous being the McMartin preschool trials from 1987 to 1990. This was about the McMartin preschool in Manhattan Beach, California, where the woman who ran it, her name was Peggy McMartin Bucky. I think her son, Raymond Bucky, and a lot of other people were accused of child abuse and child molestation and, you know, satanic ritualized abuse. They were put on trial, a series of trials between 1987 and 1990. They were ultimately acquitted of 52 counts. Like, that's the thing about these trials. Often enough, they would just collapse because there was no actual evidence. Right, right. But they would noise collapse. There were other 
infamous preschool abuse trials. Um, there was the Little Rascals Daycare in North Carolina, the Wee Care Nursery School in New Jersey, the Fells Acres Daycare in Massachusetts. One of the more famous ones is Country Walk in Florida. It just seemed like everywhere you go, preschools are being accused of being satanic covens that are abusing your children. And even though Peggy McMartin and her son were acquitted, there are a lot of stories of people who are convicted and who are still in prison to this day. Because yeah, I, I believe actually one of the individuals from the Felsacre daycare from Malden, Mass, I mm-hmm. believe is either still in prison or he didn't mm-hmm. get out until I think 18 years. That's what it was until I think he served 18 yeah. years. So, yeah. And again, I think this is like women are going to work and people are freaking out about that. And so it's like, you know, what's happening to your children? You know, it's, it's, it's playing on the guilt that we wanted to put on mothers for going oh, to work and leaving their kids with strangers. And even, and even though the women themselves, you know, they, they want to go out and they want to have a career and it's still, it's, it's something that women struggle with today because it, you know, there's this sort of push, like you can have it all, but Mm -hmm. you want to be there for your children. You want to have the career. Right. And so how do you balance it? And the fact that you're putting your children in, in daycare, um, which a lot of people do, mm-hmm. but it's still sort of that that guilt that I think that maybe mm-hmm. you don't even realize you have. Right. And, and like you're saying, it's and then it's getting anxiety. displaced into these sure. crazy. So, so probably the most damaging aspects of the satanic panic were probably the preschool trials and the West Memphis three, which I'll mention briefly, yes. mm-hmm. but there were, uh, there were other things. There was the group. I love this bothered about dungeons and dragons, oh. otherwise known as bad. <laughs> Um, (laughs) it became a thing where D&D Dungeons and Dragons was being accused of being a satanic recruitment tool and I remember I was a and d nerd and I remember like my friend's mom getting in our business about like what is this thing I'm like it's elves and dwarves and dragons and stuff come on 2020 uh, the show 2020 ran a special in 1985 about Satan worship where they talked about supposed animal mutilation, satanic graffiti, backmasking on albums, which I talked about. Geraldo Rivera, of course, Geraldo had to get in on this. <laughs> so in 1987, he had his own special on NBC called Devil Worship, Exposing Satan's Underground. And beyond the mayhem and monster, it's said that a nationwide network of satanic criminals exists. Start with the warped and wicked Charles Manson. It's everything that human beings don't understand. It's all their fears. It's what they're not sure of. You dig what I'm saying? Satan to me would be God. Or the demented son of Sam Killer, David Berkowitz. These and others purportedly linked to the devil worship underground. Was this before or after Capone's vault special? I don't know. Oh, that's a good. I didn't look that up. (laughs) That's a good question because I feel like. I mean, has Geraldo ever had credibility? I don't know, I but mean, like the Capone's vault, <laughs> Capone's vault should have destroyed it. <laughs> it really should have. I mean, I don't yeah. know. At that point, they're like, no more shows. Geraldo, yeah. <laughs> you're cut off. You're cut off. I remember watching this devil worship thing and being fascinated by it because mm-hmm. I probably would have been about 10 years old at the time. I also remember watching uh, live as Geraldo got his nose broken by a neo-Nazi live on yes. television. Yeah. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Guy threw a chair into his face. <laughs> poor Geraldo. Oh, poor Geraldo. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, there were all, like I, I talked about on the Choose Dolly episode, all the conspiracy theories about heavy metal. Heavy metal became a sort of central part of the, it was like in the crosshairs. 
um there were congressional hearings this was the rise of the parents music resource center and all the plans to put labels on albums and uh, stuff yeah. Tip, tipper gore tipper was gore that, yep. yeah mm-hmm. um and of course like i talked about on uh choose dolly uh, both ozzy osbourne and judas priest were actually put on trial uh, yeah. ozzy in 1986 and judas priest in 1990 because of supposed subliminal messages on their albums that led to the s- suicides of some of their fans yeah, uh, yeah. In both cases, the cases were dismissed and completely thrown out by the judge. So I'm going to get back to this, but it got to the point where the police and the FBI were holding seminars all around the country on how to identify satanic and pagan symbols at crime scenes. Oh, do tell. Um, <laughs> so like there are symbols like the cross of Nero and the horned hand, which I believe is just like the devil horns, the metal yeah. horns. But these were, they were being taught, like, if you see this graffiti at a crime scene, this probably means this was actually like a satanic murder. There was a woman, this is a very important part of the McMartin trial. And um, which I'm going to, I think I'm going to have to do at some point is just its own thing. Sure. But this absolutely grew out of what happened with Michelle Remembers. There's a social worker. Her name is Key McFarlane. She pioneered the method of interrogating these children. And I'm going to use the word interrogating these children using anatomically correct dolls. Right. So this is the whole idea of like, show me where the bad man, you know, touched you which has pretty much been debunked as being an effective way to actually figure out anything that happened to a child. Well, she ended up testifying in front of Congress. Again, the children are being forced to watch rituals of animals being slaughtered and to engage in, quote, scatological behavior. I'm not sure what that means, but I think it means like eating poop. Oh, my. Um, This freaked Congress out. And so they doubled the budget for all of its all the country's child protection programs. Right. Yeah. Poop is where they draw the line. Yeah. There'll be no poop eating right. in our schools. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It really does seem like that was like the, like this shall not pass. <laughs> the conspiracy theories just kept snowballing. People were saying it went all the way up into the government. There's a famous story and I don't remember the details, but it's like a kid who was kidnapped supposedly came back and talked to his mom like one time and then disappeared again. Like when he was an adult and he told his mom about how there was this cabal of like businessmen who had kidnapped him and were, it was like sex trafficking. It was very QAnon kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that was a big story at the time. There were theories that this satanic conspiracy was going all the way up into the government. People were connecting it to MK ultra, which I've also talked about on here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This of course leads right to the present day with QAnon. Like QAnon is... It's the new manifestation of the satanic panic. Oh, like the satanic God. panic never went away. It just kind of went underground and then came back. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like um, the, are you going to talk about Wayfair? Like no. Furniture? I, no, I should. I should have put that in my notes. Uh, yeah. What do you know oh, about Wayfair. it? So one of, the, <laughs> one of the conspiracy theories that was pushed out by QAnon was that Wayfair, apparently now I don't, I mean, most of my furniture comes from Ikea. I'll say it. Like, I don't mind putting together, um, you know, 50 pieces to make a couch. Like, it I only really have nice. one piece of Ikea furniture, and it is absolutely my favorite piece of furniture. I so. love it. I love yeah. it. And I really, you know, there is an Ikea. It, thank goodness it's actually a good two-hour drive away. Otherwise, I might have a real 
budget mm-hmm. problem. Um, <laughs> but, but I guess the furniture at Wayfair is, is, is very expensive. And mm-hmm. I, and supposedly some of the pieces have, they just have this sort of like kitschy, they're going to name each piece with right. a human name. Like this is the Emma and this is the Anna. I think I've seen that just when I've been like shopping for furniture. Yeah. Right. Rather than saying like, this is a dresser, like they're going to kind of like snazz it up. And so they're advertising it, adding these human names, but also the prices are really exorbitant. So Uh the conspiracy theory was like the reason why this bureau is $25,000, something that's really just seems a little odd is because you're not just buying a bureau, you're buying like a child inside And so the it. name is the... Right, it's like a key, it's like a sure. keyword. Like, like yeah. sh- you're actually buying like this child named Anna <laughs> that's inside the bureau. <laughs> Again, um, just, just the, uh, as Amelia made the point, like the sheer imagination and creativity. <laughs> if you could just like direct this to something useful. Yeah, just bottle it, bottle right? it, you know. Do what we, do what you and I do. Go write some fun stories. Like, exactly. Don't exactly. believe this shit. Though. Yeah, we're keeping, we're really keeping our streets safe, Scotty. I feel like by, by writing. I, I, mean. I, I, I tend to agree. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, it's nuts. I mean, so another crazy, this kind of goes along with what you're saying about the Wayfair thing. This was during the 80s satanic panic. The company Procter & Gamble actually had to sue about this because a rumor started in the 80s, uh, started by a guy named Jim Peters. He was the music director at the Christian Life Center in Minnesota. Hmm. He started the rumor that the Procter & Gamble logo which had actually been registered in like the 1880s or something. It features a man on the moon looking out at like a field of 13 stars. It's meant to represent the original 13 colonies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This Jim Peters was like, that's Satanism. That's satanic imagery. Of course. And then so articles were popping up all over the place. Ultimately, Procter Gamble actually had to sue a couple in Kansas uh, named James and Linda Newton because they were passing out leaflets with this whole story about how Procter Gamble was run by Satanists. Yeah. So this this is just a few of the things that happened during the satanic panic. I remember being super steeped in it because I was right at that age. I mean, like I was born in 1977. So I I remember Ozzy Osbourne being like, you know, Ozzy Osbourne is, you know, the devil worshiper. I remember them trying to say like bands like Poison and Rat were satanic, like the hair metal bands. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it, it's the same idea, like you were saying, you know, the early 70s, this, the music got louder, it got mm-hmm. more psychedelic, and then now we have the 80s where it's getting even louder and more yeah. glam, and that's really shocking. Well, and I think, like, you got boys wearing makeup, you know, right. the boys and boys are wearing makeup, and so it's like throwing gender norms out the window. Right. And so, of course, it has to be the devil, because I remember, you know, I grew up in a small town in northern New Mexico, and... And like Los Alamos is a weird town because it's like the science town, you know, it's like the national labs, but it's apparently also got the highest number of churches per capita anywhere in the country. Really? Is it? Yeah, a, it's bizarre. Is it a weird, is it a guilt thing? Because I have always wondered bomb? that because yeah. it's like, 
I'm spending my days dreaming up methods to, you know, annihilate the human race. So I need to get right with God on right, Sunday. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. So I grew up around a lot of religious people and, and like a lot of my, you know, my family wasn't, but a lot of my friends' parents were religious. And I, like I said, I remember the D&D thing being a thing. I remember heavy metal kiss supposedly stood for knights in Satan's service. Um, ACDC stood for after Christ, the devil comes, you know, I mean, it was everywhere mm-hmm. <laughs> at this time. I think at the time I didn't even question it. I thought, I think I thought it was cool because I was already into like horror stuff. So I don't know if I believed in the devil, but I believed that there were Satanists, weird satanic cults out there. And I was just fascinated by it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's also, it's, I mean, it's creepy. It's scary. It's kind of like a fun, almost mm -hmm. like folklore in your own town kind of a Mm -hmm. a deal where you're like, you know, this. this I remember, I mean, I remember there was a kid and I'm not going to say his name, in case he's a listener. <laughs> um, he was older. He was a teenager when I was in elementary school. He lived a few streets over and we were all terrified of him because he he drove like an IROC or something. And he had like long, dark, and he was like a metal kid. He was probably 15, 16, whatever. But we were like, don't let blah, blah, blah catch you alone because he'll sacrifice you to the devil. Because we all thought he was a Satanist. Yeah. 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 No, I, I mean, can recall there there was a um, a young teacher. When I was in high school, there was a young teacher's aide who had been abducted from her night job at a convenience store in a neighboring town. Mm. And then they, they found her body in mm. the woods. And there was all of this sort of, you know, rumor that something you know, her, her body had been cut up in some sort of ritualistic way. Mm. And I can even remember having a, a psychology professor that talked about the case because they, had never, they hadn't solved it right. and said that, you know, she knew someone who knew someone that was in the police and they were, they were thinking it was some sort of cult mm. and, and that just added to, to the legend going mm. on. And it sure. turned out they just convicted the killer actually just a couple of years ago. It, it made the, our local news. Huh. It was just this man who had been fixated on her and had abducted right. her and then killed her. And it wasn't anything ritualistic. It was just, yeah, like, it was just sort of her in the woods. But again, because everyone wants to believe, like you're saying, almost like the hysteria, you want to believe in it yeah. badly enough. You know, well, you and like, see. I mean, I remember, you know, we had, cause Los Alamos is up in the mountains and there was a cave. And I don't even know where the cave was. I never went there, but we all called it the hole to hell. Mm-hmm. And supposedly if you go down in this cave, there's like satanic graffiti because we clearly had Satan worshipers in Los Alamos. <laughs> what I found out later, I never went there in high school, but I talked to other friends. It was just, it was a drinking spot for like local high school kids. And the graffiti was just graffiti. Like right, it was just right. like, whatever, you know, probably like ACDC rules or whatever, you know, right, but like, right. you know, it's, it's that game of telephone thing where it just like, like it can't ever just be a simple explanation. that has got to get more and more Baroque and crazy. And this is what happens with Michelle remembers yeah. just to, to put a little pin on the satanic panic. It kind of came to an end. I, I think people point to the West Memphis three as kind of like the last gasp of the satanic panic. So for anyone who doesn't know, this happened in 1994 in Arkansas some i think it was three young boys were found murdered and three teenage boys who were like 
into metal and stuff in the community were convicted and they were not released until 2011. Right. Um, and if you've ever, if you want to know more about it, there's all sorts of documentaries about the West Memphis three, the paradise lost documentaries. Like mm-hmm. it was, it was very much became a cause celeb for a lot yeah. of people, but I think that was kind of like the end of it. So you're looking at sort of a 15 year period because I, I sort of, to me, I point to the rise of Marilyn Manson as being kind of the end of it because yeah. at that point, it was like Marilyn Manson was doing all his like shock rock Satan stuff. Yeah. And at that point we were all like, okay, whatever, dude, people were kind of rolling their eyes more. At that sure. point. Yeah. It was, it yeah. definitely seemed more, it was a show. It was a show yeah. that he was putting on for sure. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So that's the satanic panic. So let's get back to Michelle remembers. So like I said, the book itself was released in 1980 and it chronicles these therapy sessions between this Dr. Pazdar and Michelle Smith. So in these sessions, she starts off, she's talking about her family. She talks about how her mother's name is was Jessica. She married an older man named Eric Harding after World War II. When Jessica got pregnant, she and her husband were like convinced they were going to have a boy. They really wanted a boy. But then, of course, it was Michelle. They were very disappointed. They let her know how disappointed they were. And (laughs) and then there's stories about how her father was an alcoholic. And I think he kind of abandoned the family. Now, I will say I've got where did I put it? I didn't get a chance to read all of it, but I'm I'm showing Rebecca. I I Mm -hmm. ordered it on eBay. That's a thick book, too. That is. Yeah. Yeah, that's. So I've got the paperback. This is a first edition, I think, from that time, Pocket Books. Yeah, published in 1980. I'm going to post this cover <laughs> on social media because it's a hor- it's a horror novel cover. Like, yeah, look at yeah. it. It's, it's just a straight For up sure. like paperback horror novel. It's almost reminiscent of uh, like The Nightmare on Elm Street. The thing, yeah. Kind of that, you know, where Nancy's in her bed and there's something above her. Right. Um, totally. Totally. The wall, the wall. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it looks like every, like if you've ever seen Grady Hendrix, Hendrix's paperbacks from hell book, it's like right out yeah, of that. You very know? much. Yeah. But this was supposedly a true story because it's these therapy sessions. I did not have time to read the whole book. Uh, I, cause I just got it in the mail, like right before Stoker con. So I, I skimmed it. So I'm going to, I'm going to refer to parts of it, but I have not read the whole thing. Like it does appear like she came from a dysfunctional family. And so I'm sure there was some genuine childhood trauma in there. Here's a quote from the book. It says, Michelle was an active, healthy child with a mind of her own. She had a fresh, natural beauty, a sunny, open nature, an easy smile and trusting eyes. Her parents' marriage was a stormy one. There were nights when her father erupted in drunken rages and beat her mother. Michelle used to cower in her bed, frightened that he might kill her mother, feeling that she had to stop him, knowing that she could not. So if if we're to believe this, and I tend to at least think this part of the story is credible, like, like there probably was abuse, you know, in sure, this family. Yeah. I do find it funny. I just have to point back to this again though this book is written in the third it's written by dr pazdar and michelle it's written in the third person as if they're like writing as fictional characters and the way they're describing themselves like michelle you know she had a fresh natural beauty you know like like we know you wrote this (laughs) right who came up with that i'm wondering because she's an adult right and so she's looking back at herself as a as a child or was it our, you know, our dating profile <laughs> right. scribe there. I mean, it like, does, it's, jazz it up a little bit. It's got the same feel. I mean, my suspicion is that Dr. Pazdar wrote most of this. Yeah. Like, I think he was the, um, what would the word be? Uh, Almost like the 
ghostwriter, but not, but does get. Yeah. I mean, I think he, he was like, he was the instigator, I think for a lot of this. So, um, but yeah, so she's in therapy and then as their therapy is progressing, this is when Dr. Pazdar decides to put her under hypnosis. It's these hypnosis sessions that are the 600 hours of hypnosis that this is the basis of the book Michelle remembers. Mm -hmm. And it's a, an example of the largely discredited practice of recovered memory therapy. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just a little bit on recovered memory therapy or RMT. So it's, it comes from the idea and there is research that sort of indicates this. It's inconclusive. It sounds like that at least 10% of abuse victims actually do forget the abuse at some point. I've got a quote here and I don't, I didn't write down what the quote is from. Um, but it says the rate of delayed recall of many forms of traumatic experiences, including natural disasters, kidnapping, torture, and more averages among studies at approximately 15% with the highest rates resulting from child sexual abuse, military combat, and witnessing a family murdered. So basically this idea of delayed recall is something happens, you repress it, and then it comes up later. This is the whole idea of recovered memory. Now in that theory, is it the person is like, literally like, I can't remember this chunk of time or Mm -hmm. is it, which I can buy into, right. I can buy into like your brain is just, they're going to shut that part off, but it's Mm -hmm. the whole chunk. It's not like, Oh, these pieces, but I remember this piece. It's kind of this whole chunk. It sounds like it can vary uh, from person to person. And it does sound like there is some basis for this idea of that. We do suppress traumatic memories. They get kind of pushed to the side. In 1994, a woman named Linda Meyer Williams, I believe she was a psychologist. She interviewed 129 adult women who had been treated for verifiable sexual abuse as children. And she found that about 38% of them did not recall the reported incident that was on file 17 years later. So this means these are, these are women who as kids, like there was actually a police report or something. Right. And like then there was she, a third party that did witness right, it. That, so it did really happen. But yeah. So that's, recall. yeah, that's why they're calling it verifiable. She goes back to them as adults. So 17 years later and gives these interviews and they're not remembering these incidents. And she says 38% of them did not recall the reported incident. This was especially true if the perpetrator was someone who was known to the victim, which sure. makes sense. Yeah. Um, so this is often cited as evidence for oppressed memories, but it's like kind of contradictory because 88% of the women interviewed actually had memories of abuse that had never been reported. So mm-hmm. it's like, it's, you know, sometimes people remember, sometimes they don't. It's like hard to know what's going on. Right. People have also questioned her metho- methodology. And I was trying to understand what this means, but it, what it sounds like she was doing is she was going to these women and being like, let's talk about your childhood. And she knew she had this police report that she's not telling them about. Right. She knew that something had happened and she's talking to them. And she's waiting to hear if they would bring it up. And if they didn't bring it up, she's putting it down. Oh, they don't remember. But it's not clear, like, maybe they just didn't bring it up because she's like some weirdo who's asking them about their lives and they don't want to talk about it. You know? Right. Like, no, not most people aren't going to be like, hi, total stranger. Let me tell you about like yeah. my traumatic experience as a as a six year old. Like, no, that right. doesn't necessarily sort of come out naturally, I would. Right. Imagine. So right. it's the whole thing's already kind of questionable. Now, like I said, it does seem like trauma and abuse can result in partial memory loss. It's usually temporary, but there have also been studies that show that it's possible to use RMT or recover memory therapy to induce false memories. Sure. And this is yeah. where this is this is where the rubber hits the road, so to speak. Yeah. 
So one of these experiments, it involved manipulating the subjects into believing in a fictitious childhood experience, such as like being lost in a shopping mall when they were six. What this was, was the experimenter would be interviewing someone and be like, I talked to your mother and she told me about this time you disappeared and you were lost in the shopping mall. Do you remember that? And they kind of push them. And eventually they're like, well, if my mom says that it, it must have happened. Right. Like, yeah, I think I do remember that. And then it's like, you've implanted a false memory. Sure. Yeah. So it's it's a technique called familial informant false narrative procedure. So this is the whole idea of like someone in your family said this happened. So clearly this must have happened. And I imagine uh, this probably and I, I know that you put a pin in the, the daycare um, mm-hmm. incidents, but I, I can imagine that it, the, the younger the person is, the mm-hmm. easier they are to manipulate yep. in that way. Right. Yep. And that's definitely going to come up when we get to the daycare stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's a quote from a guy. I'm not sure who this is. His name is Kenneth S. Pope. Oh, I think I forgot to read my um, sources. I'll read them at the end, whatever. He has a website. It's called kspope.com. And he and he's basically refuting a lot of this. So here's here's a quote that he's he has he has like a long essay about basically why recovered memory is bullshit or recovered memory therapy is bullshit he says quote it is possible the beliefs or expectations have significantly influenced how many scientists professionals and others have attempted to respond to questions about the nature extent and validity of reported recovered memories of abuse it is worth noting for example that when clinical and counseling psychologists address the issue of therapists implanting false memories they are confronting questions about their own profession causing harm to the who come to them for help. When a large part of a professional identity involves seeing oneself as a source of help for those hurting from other causes, it may be difficult to believe or expect that one's own profession is a significant cause of harm to patients. So -hmm. basically, these therapists, they don't want to admit to themselves that what they're doing could be causing harm. So they're latching onto this idea like, no, these recovered memories are real. Again, it's confirmation bias. That's just classic confirmation bias. And this goes back to that um, woman, the social worker who like ends up testifying before Congress and stuff. She just, you know, kind of spiraled out into like the craziest conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Now the book itself, according to a YouTube video watch, she says that the book itself never uses the term hypnosis in describing the therapy that Michelle was going to, Mm -hmm. but it's pretty clear that that's what was going on. And I think even later they did kind of say, yeah, she was uh, hypnotized. And 600 hours, I mean, that is, that is a lot. I mean, he's on the book. Is. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right, yeah. So here's just a few of the things, this, the, a few of the claims that she makes in these recovered memory sessions. I'm going to go ahead and give a content warning. Like there's talk about, you know, murder, murder of children, ritualized abuse, murder of animals. My caveat to my content warning is just keep in mind that this is all bullshit. Like this didn't happen, but still content warning if you need it. So she claimed that the first ritual she attended occurred in 1954 when she was five years old. She said that at one point she had been imprisoned for months in a cage with live snakes. She watched as members of her mother's cult slaughtered white kittens in front of her with their teeth. So literally tearing them apart with their teeth. She said she was subjected to 81 days of sustained physical abuse. I'm surprised that they were able to narrow it down to 81 days. That's very specific. She said, while in this cage with the live snakes, she was forced to drink urine. She said that she was forced to bathe in the blood of dismembered babies, for which these cultists apparently had an endless supply. So it was just like, <laughs> go to the factory? dead baby emporium. And yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, this is where you, at some point I'm like, did, did no one read this and go, wait a minute. Like no, but no one did apparently. Yeah. yeah. Uh, she claimed that she had been quote given away by her mother in a death slash rebirth ceremony that was held in a mausoleum at the Ross Bay cemetery in Victoria. So this is what she said happened in this ceremony. She said her mother pushed her into an open grave after which a quote satanic nurse pulled her out and then reenacted her birth by dipping her in blood, simulating childbirth and then licking her clean like a cat. Oh, I feel like that's a whole bunch of mixed sources that they kind of smooshed together. They're like, let's just make this as freaky as possible. I mean, there's, there's just a lot. There's a lot there. There are, I'm going to post them online. There are photos of this supposed mausoleum. Very clear that the mausoleum is way too small for any of this to have happened. Yeah. She's claimed that she had been at some point locked in a hollowed out statue of Satan and said that these cultists would not let her out until she ate pieces of the dead baby that they had just smeared all over her body. So like a, a hollow, so almost like those, like the, those, I don't know, chocolate bunnies that they sell around Easter, but it's Satan. (laughs) But of Satan (laughs) and like big and probably made of metal or something. Right. And they just Um, stuck her in there. They're just kind of shoving pieces of dead baby. Yeah. They're saying like, we'll let you out when you eat this dead baby Mm. that we just smeared all over your body. (laughs) So yeah, makes sense. Right. Yeah. uh, Right. Um, She claimed she was present when cult members clubbed a woman to death at an orgiastic party that her mother held. She said that the woman's body was then loaded into a car driven by a, quote, evil man named Malachi, who then faked an accident on a nearby highway to cover up the murder. Later, Michelle said he somehow got a hold of the dead woman's ashes and forced Michelle to eat the ashes. There's no evidence of this car crash. (laughs) Yeah. Like people have looked at the time frame at the specific highway and they're like, yeah, it never happened. I'm going to read just a little bit from the book. I've made some photocopies and I'm literally, I've got to point out again, I did not have a chance to actually read much of the book. I just skimmed it. So this is literally me kind of opening like at random to find. And it's like crazy shit on every page. (laughs) So this is kind of a long bit and it's, and it's a, this is like a transcription of a conversation between them. So Dr. Pazder, you were going to tell me about what they said and about what, the word you were trying to say. Michelle, I know what it means. It's a word they use to get power somehow and to make things permanent. It's like saying in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, but it's opposite. I have to go right back to when they're cursing to remember it all. That's so hard on me. It is. I have to trust I'll come back, you know. Dr. Pazder, you will. Michelle. And then it says in parentheses, in her depths. I keep hearing someone else's voice. It's a man's voice. I don't like it. And that man is reading something from that black book, Dr. Pazder. What's he saying? Michelle, something about a door and seven times four, and then there's no more, Dr. Pazder. No more what? Michelle, I'm trying to tell you. I'm going all fuzzy. I don't understand the words. They're all put together funny. So much turning, so much turning. This black, a piece of white and blood, and it comes at night. Black, black, black. I'll open the door. Turn around and there's no more. Dr. Pazder, try to say it. Michelle, parentheses, straining to speak. Ah, hey, ah, hey, ah, ah, ah. And then there's just like a lot of that. Um, Literally, again, I just opened the book at random and found that. 
it almost sounds like a really bad Yoko Ono song. When she, was, <laughs> she was giving those pieces. I was like, yeah, totally. Like, like, like out of bongo and you're weird. good. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's like weird beat poetry or something. <laughs> um, so here's just another, this is from page 222 of Michelle Remembers. Uh, and again, literally just open the book at random. Everything was black and the black was moving, surging like a stormy sea. The people were all wearing black monk-like robes girdled with black rope. There were many, many more people, a huge crowd, and it seemed that they had gathered from all the corners of the earth. Their voices carried foreign inflections, and as alike as they were in their attire, their varied postures and movements gave the sense of a great mixture of humanity. And these people were important. They meant business. This was the most important thing in the world to them. There was a solemnity and even deeper sense of purpose than before. So, I mean, it's just like, it's a horror novel. Like, I'm sorry, this is like a pulp horror novel. Like, that's all it is. Yeah, and it, it really makes me wonder how these, I mean, really, I, I, I don't want to spoil the end. I mean, are you going to, is there a twist where in the end they're like, oh, fool ya. Like the whole time we've just made this all up or did he ever, because it uh, always like. Spoiler alert, no, they never admitted that it was made up. Because I, I almost, I'm, I'm trying to think of what, type of writing sessions they're having i know he's looking at his notes mm-hmm. and maybe kind of transcribing that and then tweaking it yeah but... i don't know if he recorded them or I don't, i'm not sure right right yeah i yeah. mean it is like just glancing through it i'm like i mean it is it's very imaginative it's very like visceral a lot of visceral sure. language of things and i'm gonna get to a little bit more here in a minute but it's just it's so clearly made up to me like it's so clearly like none of this happened well, it's just um, the mess. Like when you were talking about the mausoleum and the amount of blood, like who is cleaning that up? Like right. no one is reporting that the next day. Yeah. Like what is not easy? Right. Not that I would know, <laughs> not that I would know personally, but a whole lot of blood, you know, over a crime scene is not easy to clean up. I would so, think. I mean, it's probably know. about as easy as just going down to the store and finding a dead baby right. to, to use in right. your rituals. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I mean, I, yeah, it's, it's just, it's so, anyway, <laughs> but let's get to, so towards the end of the book, Michelle claims that she actually met Satan himself. Oh, okay. That he was okay. brought forth in a ritual called the Feast of the Beast, which if yes. I ever have a death metal band, my first album is going to be called Feast of the Beast. Yeah. I mean, great rhyme. That's, right. That's, like, so catchy. Yeah. So catchy. <laughs> and she says she was ultimately saved by the intervention of the Virgin Mary. So I'm going to read a little bit about the Feast of the Beast to you. I actually did like search this out in the book. Okay, so this is the description of the Feast of the Beast. It says, the plan is based on the horns of death, the satanic emblem used on the altar cloths and the backs of cloaks. Just as the Christian mass moves in the form of a cross, the satanic worshipers trod the form of the horns of death. It's shaped that of the face of a horned pig. In abstract, see diagram, and look, there's <laughs> even a little diagram. Oh, thank goodness. It. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll post that diagram on social media. <laughs> the emblem is a long vertical triangle point down with curved horns veering off from the upper corners and two bars drawn across the face. The black mass starts at the altar, which is at the juncture of the horns in the forehead of the face. With files of high priests lining his way, Satan leads a procession up one horn and back again. En route, he provides a all caps vision of hell. Again, from the altar, they proceed up the other horn for a all caps vision of despair. (laughs) 
they return to the altar and a human sacrifice takes place. And then it goes on and on and on and on and on. So here, here's what Michelle said. This is just, again, just, just a piece of what happened during the Feast of the Beast. Yeah. This is what Michelle is telling Dr. Pazdar, allegedly. It says, Michelle felt there was something very wrong with her legs. They had been growing weaker and weaker, but now they would work hardly at all. She could barely stand. She wanted nothing so much as to collapse, to let the smudged, scabby little knees buckle as they yearned to do. But she forced herself to remain erect. If she collapsed, Satan would bellow, she was sure. More important, she would be failing in a promise to watch, to see everything. Through heavy-lidded eyes, she suddenly was aware that the awful circles were parting, peeling back and out. The high priests were forming two sets of converging lines leading away from the stone altar. And now the beast himself emerged from the fire, exclamation point. <laughs> he was coming directly to Michelle, exclamation point. <laughs> Coiling his tail around her waist, he paraded along on monstrous legs, dragging her up one of the paths defined by the rows of priests. Gasping, Michelle saw that wherever he stepped, his footprints were burned into the ground. You see hell, he roared back at her over his shoulder. And as he spoke, the walls of the round room faded away. And it seemed to the child that she was in the middle of an enormous movie with a gigantic soaring images. Satan now was bestriding the world like Paul Bunyan in her storybook at home. And as he went trailing Michelle behind him and leading a long procession of black robed worshipers, there was a great rushing of wind and the sky flashed and riled you see hell satan thundered blah 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 it goes on and on, and on. now virgin mary like she ends up saving I, michelle like how does i'm that gonna happen? like full disclosure i was like i could read the virgin mary shit but like i need a break <laughs> I, I mean, I want to wanna... know. Was she in like the invisible jet? Does yeah, she, I'll, does she I'll just have kind to... of appear? Like, what is going on? Yeah, um, I don't know. I, I think I was just like rolling my eyes so hard. They were, as Amelia likes to say, they were falling out of the back of my head. Right. Um, I, I mean, when you were describing it, though, I, I thought about, I know there have been reports of psychiatry utilizing LSD and ecstasy sort of, right. in, you know, in the 60s and 70s. Well, it's like the MKUltra stuff. Yeah. Right. And I almost wonder, because he doesn't state that it's hypnosis, maybe it's drug induced. That's that's interesting. I, I hadn't read that anywhere, but I, I mean... That makes as much sense as anything because like, I mean, it is so batshit bonkers. I mean, I don't know if she's feeding this to him or if he's feeding this to her or where, where that line is, but something's happening in these sessions. This is not therapy right? <laughs> at this right. point. I almost want like deep inside. I want it to be just this joke that they decide to play. Where yeah. They're sitting down and they're like, no, no, no more exclamation points. <laughs> right. All I mean, caps, it is all caps. the writing. Like, like I said, it's like, yeah, the all caps and the exclamation points. It is so ridiculous. It is like, I mean, I've read a lot of really trashy 1980s paperback horror novels. And mm -hmm. this is exactly that. Like yeah. it's, it's the same, it's the same style of writing. It's, it's so, again, it's imaginative, like good for them for, for their creativity, but I can't believe anyone read this in 1980 and was like, yeah, this totally makes sense. Like <laughs> I buy it, <laughs> like, yeah. but apparently oh, not only like some people did, a lot of people did. So as the sessions continued, her stories just became 
more and more horrific, so horrific to the point that Dr. Pazdar ultimately began bringing in priests to offer blessings to protect her, which again, seems like not valid medical practice, but you know, who am I to say? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's the book. So let's talk a little bit about the aftermath. So Dr. Pazdar and Michelle, they wrote this book together, came out in 1980. They were given a hundred thousand dollar advance from the publisher. I wonder if that was split. 50 50 i'd be curious to know well i mean well we'll get to there we'll get to their relationship here in a second okay but yeah so it's a hundred thousand dollar in advance from the publisher and then two hundred and forty-two thousand for both the paperback and movie rights Mm -hmm. this equals as we know amelia loves a good like inflation conversion you have one Mm -hmm. in your story so here's mine this comes out to about 1.2 million in today's dollars Okay, um, so a decent paycheck anyway. Decent paycheck, yeah. Now, there were plans to make it into a movie. Never happened because someone, and I'm, I couldn't figure out who, but someone I think who had been named in the book or something threatened to sue for libel. Mm-hmm. And they were like, I think the studios were like, mm, no, we don't need to deal with that headache. Yeah, It was an immediate sensation. And it was being reported as fact. Particularly the supermarket tabloids just ran with it and were just like, every week was like new claims from Michelle remembers like, Oh, it, it sounds like you're like newsstand. Yeah. Right. I'm just imagining like being like in line at the grocery store and just right by the cash register is just like more satanic details inside kind of thing. They started popping up on all the daytime talk shows they were being, and, and they were being treated like no one was questioning them. No one was like, wait a minute. Did this really happen? Like no one's out there. People are just like, Proof of the satanic conspiracies inflicting our nation today. In 1989, so nearly 10 years later, she was on Oprah. Oprah had her on alongside a woman named Laurel Rose Wilson, who had also written another one of these supposed accounts of satanic ritual abuse. Uh, Her book was called Satan's Underground. Oprah interviewed both of the women. She treated them, like I said, unquestioningly. They were presented as proof of satanic ritual abuse. They were treated as victims and like brave survivors. And, you know, so all the people who were like, Oprah should run for president. I'm like, look back at Oprah in the 80s. Maybe not. (laughs) But... (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) okay so after the booking out more and more people from all over the country like this laurel rose wilson they started coming forward with their own stories there were more and more books and then people started looking at dr pazder's methods and they were like let's apply this to some five-year-olds yeah and there you get the mcmartin trial Yep. Because mm-hmm. they took his methods and they had this, I, I'm forgetting her name again, but that social worker who was doing the anatomical dolls. Sure. They're going into these kids and being like, what happened at this preschool? And I mean, the Mick Martin story is insane. And I'm going to, I'm going to have to do it its own justice at some point. But the, the craziest thing is like these kids were being put on the stand. These psychiatrists are being put on the stand and no one is questioning any of this. No one is stopping and saying, what the fuck? Like none of right. this makes any sense. Right. It was right. just accepted. Dr. Pazner, in fact, became seen as a quote expert on quote ritual abuse, uh, which was a term that he actually coined himself. So oh, good sure. job, he's, Dr. Pazner. Yeah. He's branding it. Yeah. Right. He's, he's, uh... <laughs> Um, He actually worked as a consultant on the McMartin case. He popped up on TV news shows. He was on that episode of 2020 that I mentioned. He was 
himself consulted by law enforcement agencies. He took part in the first national law enforcement seminar on ritual abuse, which was held in Fort Collins, Colorado in 1986. He later joined the Cult Crime Impact Network, which would go around the country and lecture to police departments and other agencies throughout the 80s. So this is where I was saying, like, this is how you recognize satanic graffiti and, you know, the cross of Nero and all that kind of bullshit. Yeah. And you have to wonder, and I'm fascinated by people that are like this because I'm always wondering, are they true believers? Like, do did he really think, like, I am doing like such a service to all of these victims that have been in the dark or is he a complete Svengali that's like to me here's here's my paycheck that I'm gonna ride yeah you know to me it's a real open question what the motives were here I tend to think Michelle herself was a victim if not of ritual abuse she's a victim of this guy yeah who I feel like he exploited her and to the point where he actually had an affair with her Uh, So Dr. Pazder, this respected psychiatrist, expert on satanic ritual abuse, was actually sleeping with his patient. Yeah, that's a big no-no, I understand. (laughs) Pretty big. Psychiatric profession. Let's let's just say it's frowned upon from from what I understand. (laughs) (laughs) He was married. His first wife, her name is Marilyn. He had four children with her. He tried to get their marriage annulled by the church. The church was... That's not happening after four kids. No, they were like, go fuck yourself. Yeah. So he ended up divorcing his wife. Michelle divorced her husband and they got married. Um, Mm -hmm. So Mr. and Mrs. Dr. Lawrence Pazdar here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Here's a quote from this is a an article from a newspaper called Capital Daily, which I believe is a Canadian paper, and they're kind of telling the story of the Satanic Panic, and they're talking to a guy, an FBI agent named Ken Lanning, who went to a bunch of these seminars that Dr. Pazdar was operating. So this is kind of a long quote from uh, the Capital Daily talking about what it was like to be at these seminars. So it says, seminars on identifying and investigating satanic ritual abuse became common throughout North America, where Michelle Proby and Lawrence Pazder were frequent guests. Pazder was an unbelievably intelligent man who is extremely skeptical of almost all the other cases of satanic ritual abuse, except his own. Mm. And a few others, said Lanning, who attended one of these conferences in the 1980s. Pazdar told the assembled police officers that he could spot the valid cases involving true intergenerational satanic cults from hoaxes and mere teenage rebellion. Lanning, intrigued, recalls taking about 40 pages of notes throughout the presentation until he began to notice something odd. Police officers would ask Michelle Proby about her experiences, and she would simply turn to Pazdar, who would answer the question. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. Lanning piped up. I'm curious. These are all things that happened to Michelle, but you seem to be answering all the details, he said. Pazder responded that Proby no longer retained any memory of the events after she recounted them in full in her therapy sessions. Her brain had, quote, locked back up again, and now I'm the keeper of the story. Oh, good God. It's it's right? now I'm sort of now I'm imagining their writing sessions and it's Ooh. actually a little more sinister. Oh, it's, Um, I think it's pretty sinister. I like spoiler alert. I mean, I'm almost done with the story, so there's no spoilers, but I think Lawrence Pazder is an absolute villain. Yeah. This was not a good guy. As far as I'm concerned, I have some sympathy for Michelle. I think she was exploited, but this Mm -hmm. guy seems like a real shady motherfucker. Now, is she still alive today? I I couldn't find much about her. So I'll get to his ultimate fate here in a second. 
One quick thing. So she ended up being estranged from her father, a guy named Jack Proby. So I guess Proby must have been her maiden name. He publicly denounced her claims. He said that everything she said about her mother, who at this point was dead, was entirely fabricated. Mm -hmm. So this is what her father said, quote, it was the worst pack of lies a little girl could ever make up. The book took me four months to read and I cried all the time. I kept saying to myself, dear God, how could anyone do this to their dead mother? So in 1994, as people are starting to look at the satanic panic and being like, wait, this might, this might be a bunch of bullshit, actually. He started getting more like critical press attention. And he said in a 1994 interview uh, where he was being challenged on this stuff that he said it was less important whether what happened in the book was actually true than it was whether Michelle believed that it was true. Uh huh. So mm-hmm. there you go, Dr. Lawrence Pazder. Yeah, he, he yeah. He died of a heart attack on March 5th, 2004. He and Michelle were together until the end. In his obituary, Michelle is referred to as, quote, his wife and soulmate. Now, I was not able to find much on what happened to her. I found, like, on iTunes, I think, there's a woman named Michelle Proby who's, like, releasing Christian music. So that Kinda could like be Mark, her. Mark David Chapman. I understand he's also yeah. recording pieces oh, of music. <laughs> that's interesting. Maybe, maybe they'll, you know become a duo yeah. that, that might be fun yeah it'd be like the next what was it when like um natalie cole did her duet with nat king cole <laughs> like this would be like that for the next generation yes please, please yeah so i'm gonna close out with a quote um this is from ugh, i forgot to write down where this was from but it says quote it's tempting to write off michelle remembers this a simple fraud to assume that proby and pazda were lying in the pursuit of fame and fortune but the details of their story don't square with michelle remembers being a con these were two people who genuinely believed in the truth of proby's claims it's partially because of michelle remembers that cognitive scientists now understand that memory can be an incredibly malleable thing mm-hmm. at some level Everybody knows that memory has reconstructive elements, said Stephen Lindsay, a professor of psychology at the University of Victoria, who has conducted research into the limits of eyewitness testimony. That does not mean that our memories are false, but they are rarely as accurate as we think they are. And that is the story of Michelle Remembers and the spark that set off the satanic panic. Yeah. Yeah. What a tragedy for that woman. I just, yeah. You have to wonder. I mean, I think I agree with you. I think there had to be something, you know, some sort of seed of, you know, just regular old terrible childhood abuse. And then that this guy sort of latched onto it. And and I I think that's exactly what happened. And and so it, it takes me back to your story, because I think there was maybe a seed of something going on with these girls. Like whether it was ergotism, whether who knows, but I feel like the Putnam's at the very least were like "Mm, opportunity. Yeah. And I feel like, yeah. And I feel like it was the same thing with this guy. Now, whether he believed it or not, I don't know, but I think he clearly exploited her. Sure. Sure. Like, I think it's, it's to me, there's no question that she was exploited by this. And unfortunately it set off this moral panic that the country was gripped by for about 15 years that led to a lot of people like we said the west memphis three were in prison until 2011 the guy you mentioned from what was it the fell acres from fells acres yeah fells acres was in prison for decades i mean i think there are still people in prison like everyone knows that this was fake but the courts are not they're denying appeals and stuff to this day i think right so and it is almost like the spectral evidence in the sense that you know they're talking about especially some of these really fantastic 
descriptions where you, if you really look at it with a critical eye, it's like, like you're saying, like, you know, is there this, you know, plethora of dead babies somewhere right. that people are just sort of harvesting? And, yeah. you know, where are these, you know, where's this white kitten farm where they're just, they're just sort of spitting them out so that they can uh, rip them apart with their teeth. And who is cleaning it all up? Like, I'm just. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you've got, you've got the writer's brain where we're trying to make the plot <laughs> details work. Oh, right. <laughs> right. I mean, any critic, like looking at that as a piece of fiction would be like, no, plot hole, plot yeah. hole, plot hole. So, so you're saying if I submit a story where someone is being smeared <laughs> by dead babies, I better get my facts right. Right. Better do my yeah. research ahead of, yeah. ahead of time. <laughs> yeah, definitely tie it up in the end. Somehow, right. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's What's amazing to me about your story, about this story, about McCarthyism. I mean, we talked about this, Amelia and I, when we were talking about the Manchurian Candidate, mm-hmm. is when you get into these quote witch hunts. Yeah. They never pass the smell test. Right. Like if you're looking at it with anything like any sort of critical eye, it's obvious. The spectral evidence in the in the Salem story, like it's obvious that these things were being made up. Right, know? but the but the scary thing is, is that because I know with with QAnon, so there's that yeah. that multi part documentary. I want to say it's on Netflix. It may not be. It may be on. Another I think it's on HBO. Service. HBO. I, I yeah, because I, I watched it. See, I really tried to watch it. I tried, and I I sat through the first episode, and there was something about, and it was one of the people that they interview, and he was so steadfast mm-hmm. in his refusal. <laughs> To even consider that this, you know, these conspiracy theories aren't true, that I yeah. just thought this is, it's going to, you know, I'm going to, it's going to drive it's, blood pressure up. I no, just ab- can't watch yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, it, that documentary is maddening and I don't like, it's worth watching. I want to, I, I don't remember what it was called. Um, and I, like I said, I think it was on HBO, but I could be wrong, Yeah. but it makes a pretty solid case as to who Q is. Mm-hmm. And if Q is who the documentary is kind of hinting it is, the whole thing was a fucking joke. Yeah, which like I believe. It was a I believe. fucking joke. Absolutely. Yeah. It's kind of like, let's just see, you know, the bigger the lie, the more people will exactly. believe it. And let's just push. We're going to push and we're going to add something else. And where, what's the tipping point? And there hasn't been a tipping point. Right. right? I, I can't believe um, we haven't hit it yet. But one, that makes me think of like the stories we're hearing out of Ukraine, where, you know, people in Ukraine are calling their family in Russia and saying, this is happening. Like my neighborhood has been bombed. My neighbors have been killed. And the, their family's like, no, it's not. It's a lie. It's a lie. Right. Fake right. news, fake news. Right. People will believe what they want to believe. Right. You can't, you can't go to people with logic because if they, if they don't want to believe it, they're not going to. You know, they will make up the craziest stories to believe what they want. Sure. And it's what's even frightening. And if you think of it on the reverse, so the people that really are suffering abuse, you know, not this kind of fantastical things that that's, but but actually, I mean, there are some horrific people out there. Sure. And, and so if we have these extreme cases where, okay, well, obviously this is fiction, then it becomes this trickle down effect of, Mm -hmm. well, now we're not going to believe the real, the real survivors or victims of abuse. And and then it it causes even more damage. Oh, absolutely. I mean, people have talked about this with that Rolling Stone article about the campus rape that got debunked and how much damage that has done to people who have actually been assaulted and need support and need the police and their community to support them, you know? Yeah. Because there, it's not that satanic violence 
didn't exist at the time because you, all you need to do is look at Richard Ramirez. Right. Which I almost wonder if he was kind of like, Hey, this is the hip thing to be now. I like, mean, I want to be scared. I kinda, almost like, well, Manson, you know, he had instructed the family to leave something witchy uh-huh. like to specifically to scare, to when scare his, people. And his whole ideology was crazy. Cause he was both like, he was telling people he was both Jesus and Satan. And mm-hmm. you know, it was, you know, fucking wild. Yeah. But you're right. Like with Manson, they'll leave something witchy because it was like, there's a part of the Manson murders that was all performative. Right. Cause you know, he's trying to start his helter skelter and everything. Right. Right. Um, you have, I think Richard Ramirez, I think absolutely. He had, he bought into it you know it's the black metal guys like when i talked about the black metal murders like these are guys who took the absolute wrong lesson from the satanic panic they they remind me of the guys who watched fight club and thought it was a good idea at the end of that movie to start a fight club it's like (laughs) did you watch the last half of the movie but (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah but i mean you know so it's not that these things don't exist but it becomes much harder to take seriously and then you do have that question of like the chicken or the egg thing would richard ramirez have been what he was without the satanic panic already Mm -hmm. happening i mean i don't think the black metal murders would have happened without the satanic panic i feel like richard ramirez still would have been killing people but i think that yeah would have adopted maybe a different persona for the media and well, it's the whole it's the whole quote from Scream where it's like horror movies don't create serial killers, they just make serial killers more creative. Exactly. You know? Exactly. I mean, yeah. I think that I'm I'm sure I'm gonna do more on the satanic panic uh on this podcast, but this is the start. This is where it started, was yeah. the book Michelle remembers. So that was a great, great job. I like I like that. Cool. That was good. Well, thank you. Well, and thank you so much for coming on. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I, I hope you I, had a good time. <laughs> yeah. And I have to tell you, so so listening to the episodes kind of leading up to Amelia um going off to uh-huh. so she's gonna be an understudy in nine to five, which I yeah. think is, is so cool. That is yeah. just so cool. As a fan of Dolly Parton, I think <laughs> it's just going to be super, it's just, just super cool. Yeah. Um, but hearing the episodes leading up to it, I was actually starting to get more and more anxiety because I'm like, <laughs> I, I can't believe I have to be like the first person to follow this, you know, Amelia's awesomeness. But so I just thank you so much for having oh, me. I, well, I loved your story. I thought it was fascinating. I, I was so happy to have you on here and you know we've got a few months so if you're into it maybe we could have you on again yeah that would be that would be super cool and i just want to say remind listeners dancing in the shadows comes Mm -hmm. out this sunday it does feature an original scotty milder story so Mm -hmm. um, pick it up if for no reason just for that just for that and and to help out some animals in new orleans and to help out some animals absolutely yeah. yeah all right well i guess i better uh i'm gonna see if i cannot bungle uh amelia's usual sign off what is it uh stay weird stay curious and i will be back i guess in a couple weeks so listen friends we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find might be true and that's the weirdest thing